this is the Manga Mavericks Podcast on AllComic.com, episode 138. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lum Ramiyasha. And today we have a special spooky Halloween episode for you. doing something that is really special because we are releasing publicly a episode we previously had as a Patreon bonus podcast, a review of Kazuki Takahashi's The Comic. That's right, the short miniseries by the creator of Yu-Gi-Oh! done just a couple years ago in Jump that we, you know, reviewed and we want to release on this day in particular on Halloween Day 2020 because if you've read the series, you know that the murder in the series took place on Halloween 2020. So it it was just too good a timing to pass up. We had to release this episode publicly now but for all of you who have already listened to it on the patreon we are going to include some extra special goodies in this halloween basket of an episode for starters let's also talk about the fact that this comic discussion we did it with the translator of the series for john stefan Kosa. we had him back on the show again the translator of jujutsu kaisen a ton of other great series for jump and it was a great conversation on the comic and a lot of the cool nuances and and the writing and how unique the art is it was a really great discussion but in addition to all that, you know, we're going to, of course, do some news roundup to start off the show. And we're going to have another special bonus review attached to this episode of another cool little short thing done by some established doctors. We're going to do the spirit photographer one shot done by the Promised Neverland team. Posca, Demizu, and Kayu Shirai. They did this short little one shot that was pretty cool horror story. It, it, it's it's a- interesting it's interesting i mean we might not go on a big discussion of it but you know another short little review to give you some just extra goodies like stuff your basket full till it overflows with some goodness you know we we, we gotta give our listeners plenty of candy yeah yeah i mean tis the season and um i mean unfortunately uh a lot of people might not be getting a ton of uh, goodies this Halloween because of uh, social distancing, quarantine, and uh, that hurting some trick or treating. So, well, now, now, unless you're an adult like like we are, arguably, then uh, you know you have an, you have enough money to buy some discount candy the very next day, which is definitely oh, what I'm going to do. That's not the same. <laughs> that's not the same at all. That's not trick or treat. <laughs> Buying candy. Well, I can't go trick or treating. Cheap discount candy. I mean, you can if you were brave enough. Um, I, if I you don't know. <laughs> were going to ignore the concerned looks, the bizarre looks given to you by adults giving out candy, you're like, why is this twenty something year old trying to go around trick or treating in a I don't know, a Scooby Doo costume <sighs> or some lame costume? See, uh, 
now I feel like I opened up a whole can of worms because I, I, I'm look full disclosure. I'm 27 years old. I am not brave enough to go trick or treating right now. It's, I mean, despite everything going on in the world with the pandemic, I still wouldn't be brave enough to go trick or treating unless, unless I was like babysitting like my older sister's uh, kid or something. I, I can at least use that as an excuse. Like, hey, I'm collecting candy for this small child, and definitely not for myself. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at least that's the excuse you're telling us right now. Maybe you are doing some stuff in secret we aren't privy to. <laughs> I mean, everyone, not only is everyone wearing masks nowadays, I mean, on Halloween, everyone's wearing costumes. You know, you could you could hide your age, your identity pretty well and sneakily go around connecting candy meant for the youngins. Maybe, um, but still, I, again, I... I'm going to try to save some money and I'm going to buy at least $20 worth of discount candy because, man, I I, f- I feel like there's going to be a lot of candy left over in my neck of the woods uh, specifically. But uh, you know, those, those are my Halloween plans. But, you know, while, while, while I'm eating candy, you know, you guys you guys get to listen to this special podcast that we had planned for you. And, yeah, uh, I hope everybody I hope everybody enjoys it. I think we should save the candy for later and get right into news. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, before we can get to sweet stuff, we got to start off with some really sour grapes, some very sad news, mm-hmm. because unfortunately, a veteran mangaka whose work was very much beloved sadly passed away earlier this month, and you may know their work very well. Uh, they were the creator of Kimigori Orange Road, Izumi Matsumoto. He passed away on October 6th. He at 61 years old. And uh, Matsumoto's health problems had been pretty well documented uh, in these past couple of years. He had been suffering from general malaise due to cerebrospinal fluid hypovolemia, or otherwise known as depleted cerebrospinal fluid. And she tried to work and fight through the illness and was anxious about heart surgery. But, uh, you know, he was really suffering. From a lot of pain, a numbness in his legs, a lot of pressure on his spinal cord. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, these were long-standing health problems that, you know, were preventing him from sleeping. And the sleeping pills that he was getting from his doctor were very ineffective. And so, you know, sleeping kind of became very scary for him. Um, And... There were just a lot of pain, a lot of pressure on his bones and muscles, his spinal cord. And I'm certainly aging, having all this pain at his age certainly did not help matters. And it really hurt his daily activities. So, of course, he was confined in a hospital bed a lot of the time. And uh, he wasn't really able to do a whole lot. And the MP, of course, when they were doing their Kimigoy Road Kickstarter, they uh, they promised like signatures, uh, autographs to Matsumoto, which, of course, could not really be done because it was bad conditions. So they were pretty tone deaf to that and irresponsible making that commitment without considering his health. So that was very awful of them. Mm-hmm. But at least according to Matsumoto's doctor, he passed away in his sleep without suffering. So if there is any comfort to be taken in this his tragic passing, I, I would say at least he did sleep well uh, in his final night, it seems, after having a history of poor sleep for many years and sleeping becoming a frightening thing for him. So 
Uh, it's very, very sad if whenever, like, a beloved mangaka mangaka who's created a beloved work, you know, really passed away. And Kimigori Orange Road, you know, that's basically his magnum opus, like, his biggest work. He wasn't really able to create a whole lot of series because of his poor health, you know, in the past couple decades. But that is a beloved work that has resonated with so many people decades on and... Uh, I think is a good legacy to leave behind. But, of course, you know, it's incredibly sad to lose him so young uh, and in such a way where he was in poor health the final couple years of his life. So I just want to, you know, offer my respects uh, to Matsumoto. Uh, may he rest in peace. And, of course, my condolences to his family, his friends, his loved ones, and of course to all the fans of him and Kimigori on Road, which really did mean a lot to a lot of people, especially in kind of the formative years of people getting to anime fandom in the 80s and 90s. But we, of course, had to address this news and it's always very hard to move on from you know tragic stories of people passing away like this into other news but you know this is kind of the sad point of the podcast and we're gonna try and you know again cheer your spirits uh for this halloween special podcast from here on Mm -hmm. yeah i i just i just want to apologize for the possible whiplash from our uh from our jokey banter earlier into this very serious first piece of news uh yeah but it, it it's it's hard to transition in and out of stories like that yeah i mean it's important to report i mean the that we hadn't gotten to report it because just of some of the timing problems we tend to have with reporting news you know we we always seem to record and then like a big story like this comes out i think this story came up literally the day after we recorded our last news discussion. Yeah, pretty much. And then we just didn't end up recording an additional segment to include for that. So we it just, in terms of timing, we had to report it here. But again, we have a lot of good discussion to hopefully cheer your spirits. And, you know, I think it's good also to just pay tribute to Matsumoto's memories and his legacy. So... I want to really shout out right now Cat Callahan's retrospective of Izumi Matsumoto and Kimigori Orange Road on Anime News Network. They are a huge fan of Matsumoto's. They were like a guest uh, liaison for him. And they talk about like their experiences, not only like growing up as a Kimigori Orange Road fan, but also their experiences with meeting Matsumoto and what he was like as a person. It's a very sweet and touching retrospective. So definitely give that a read. Mm-hmm. In, in general, I I would uh, I can't really say when we'd get to it, but like at some point, I wouldn't mind maybe reviewing Kimigori Orange Road for the show, possibly. I think that'd be a really cool discussion to have because I've uh, I've only seen maybe like a few episodes of the anime, like maybe 10 years ago at this point, and I've never read any of the manga, and I've always been kind of interested in checking it out, so. Yeah, I've read it all, and yeah, I definitely think it'd be a great series to talk about. It's definitely a formative, influential rom-com uh, in many ways, so, you know, there's a lot to say about it. Uh, very iconic characters in Madoka and Akaru. 
And yeah, I I also have all of it in English because I did support that DMV Kickstarter. So I mean, I have it on my shelf to read anytime. Uh, but yeah, I think that it would be nice to do an episode on it. We'll we'll put it on our to do list. Yeah. But uh, I guess we should move on from that into some uh, serialization news we have to talk about. Yeah, we're going to, again, try and bring things up now to talk about some more, you know, uplifting stories or at least some more lighthearted things. And what's more lighthearted than, like, weird isekai spinoffs of established manga by a lot of different Kodansha creators from Weekly Shonen Magazine? Because... Uh, the 46th issue of Week Shonen Magazine, they basically reveal that like five different mangaka are doing isekai-themed spin-offs of some of their beloved series. So we've got Reiji Miyajima of Rent-A-Girlfriend. They're going to do a Rent-A-Girlfriend isekai spin-off. Uh, the Serial Girl, Greater Masakuni Igarashi, they're doing one. Keisasuga for Domestic Girlfriend. Oh, wow. Yosuke Kaneda from Boarding School Juliet. And Kuji Seo, who is kind of a hitman. But I think the one that they're going to do as an isekai spin-off is Fuka. Because what is more perfect than doing a Fuka isekai? She dies by getting hit by a truck. <laughs> An isekai where she is just like transported to another world after getting hit by that truck. And she gets to live in this alternate fantasy world where she and a fantasy version of you can't actually get together. That's a pretty great idea. That's pretty <laughs> funny. Oh my gosh. He has to do that. It would be such a missed opportunity if he does not do that. That's the reason I really wanted to talk about this is because just the potential of having a food. Fuka is a guy's spin-off. It's very, very funny and perfect and amusing to me. Uh, that, do, that does sound but, like it'd be pretty good. But also, rent-a-girlfriend, he's a kid, domestic girlfriend, he's a guy. Those also seem like they could be real trashy fun. So, uh, yeah, I I would like to see what comes of this. Hopefully these spinoff one shots get included, like the graphic novels for these series. So they get translated English over here so people can read them because uh, they sound like a potential for some real fun stuff. But we also got some other spinoff news because the Kobayashi Dragon Maid franchise from Kokushinja is getting another spinoff. There was the one about Kana, and then there was the one about Elma, and now we're getting one about Fafnir. It's gonna be Kobayashi's Dragon Maid Fafnir the Recluse. It's gonna be drawn by Nobuyoshi Zamurai in Futabasha's monthly action magazine. It's going to come out on November 25th. And yeah, it's basically going to be about Otaku Dragon Fafnir and uh, him playing games in his apartment. So that's going to be very fun. I th- I think I remember you mentioning you wanted a spinoff of Fafnir on like an earlier episode. Yeah, I think I think him just hanging out with his roommate play- trying to play games and doing all these Otaku hijinks. Yeah, the potential to be really, really fun. Just a BL, my, a, a story about a dude and his uh, gamer boyfriend. His dragon gamer boyfriend. Very <laughs> funny. Uh, oh, there was also Lukoa a spinoff. So this is like pretty much all of them. Pretty much every member of the main cast has gotten a spinoff at this point. Hmm. Looks like they've run out of spinoffs. 
uh, you, I think there's the one dragon left, and then maybe they'll do side characters. Who knows? Who knows? This Dragon Maid franchise is getting as many spinoffs as Cells at work, you know? <laughs> it's just a, a fountain, a huge wellspring of franchise potential and opportunity. I have to imagine that these Dragon Maid spinoffs are probably licensed to print money or something, otherwise they... I mean, they keep making them. Yeah, I've yeah, there is one member, there's one dragon left who has not gotten a spinoff, Ilulu. So next is going to be the Ilulu one, and then they'll have done basically all the main characters. They'll all have their own series. Oh, man. Well, un- until the day comes where we get that final uh, Dragon Maid spinoff, uh, let- let's talk about something new we can look forward to from uh, from Mr. Boichi of uh, currently Dr. Stone fame, uh, they are going to be doing a two-chapter manga uh, as announced in the 47th issue of Kodansha's Weekly Young magazine. That'll be starting in the 40th issue. I guess by the time this episode's out, it'll have already started uh, this October 26th. Uh, And uh, the manga is entitled Karewa Soko Niita, roughly translated to He Was There. We we don't know much about this two part manga thing, other than I guess what was revealed uh, in the magazine uh, that says uh, this manga takes place in in the far off future and centers on a driver of a large truck who has a secret that he can't tell anyone. So futuristic trucker manga, possibly. That's that's all I got out of this. Uh, usually these adverts don't really tell you everything or almost anything usually. So uh, that's what I'm going to assume until, I don't know. um, I don't know what the chances are of this getting picked up by somebody, but I mean, again, like Boichi is really someone whose works I need to read more of because between because obviously I love Dr. Stone and uh, you know, I, I really need to read his other stuff like, Sun uh Sun Ken Rock, I think that's what it's called. Yep. Um yeah, like I there, there's so much Boichi content out there that I I've I've yet to consume that uh yeah. Uh I mean, I don't know. I guess we'll we'll see if this gets picked up. Uh, maybe it'll be included in a volume of something somewhere, I don't know, but uh if it does we'll let you know. Uh and yeah, that's that's really all I have about to say. I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. No, I mean, it sounds interesting, and I like Boichi's art, and I'm always interested to check out more of his work. I'm I'm literally, like, I think Boichi, I would put in the category of, of manga artists such as, like, Yusuke Murata, where, like, literally they can't do anything wrong. Like, they're just incapable of drawing anything that's, like, you know, not good, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think his, uh... Women, I think he could. No, that's give true. Realistic proportions. That that's that's Boichi's one weakness for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, but I mean, his his character expressions, his action, uh, his, his paneling, compositions, those are pretty great. Like his art is incredibly lively. I mean, like have have you have you seen how he draws One Piece lately? Like some of that some of that stuff's amazing. Yeah, I mean, his his sense of perspective and. You know, even if his bodies are not always the most realistic, he can make some really dynamic uh, shots with them. But how he can frame 
the camera and position his characters. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, again, he is an exceptionally skilled artist when it comes to drawing anything besides women. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, but uh, again, outside of that, he's still pretty amazing, all things considered. Yeah. But anyway, what, what's uh, I, I think we have some new series coming. Yeah, we got a couple new series from some cool creators. First, we've got a new series from Io Sakisaka of Blue Spring Ride and Love Me, Love Me Not Fame. Both really great series. And they're coming up with a new series in Bizatsu Margaret that's going to come out in early 2021 or potentially a later issue than the February issue. We don't really have a ton of information on what the series is going to be about. Potentially, it could be a series based on her one shot from earlier this year where a maiden ends up. I think uh, we're going to have to just wait and see. But I am really enjoying Love Me, Love Me Not. Just check that out. I've heard great things about Blue Spring Ride. So I'm looking forward to more work from her. I guess next up in terms of other new series, uh, we have to look forward to uh, this year's November issue of Shueisha's Bisatsu Margaret revealed that uh, Kazune Kawahara, uh, who you may remember as the writer of such series as uh, My Love Story, Azura Yell, and uh, and High School Debut as well, uh, is going to be coming out with a new short manga series uh, entitled Kara Sawagi. Or, I guess, translated to Much Ado About Nothing, which, uh, as the article uh, references, is a reference to the name of William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing play. So, you know, this, this series might be, uh, might be an interesting take on, uh, on that play. Maybe possibly a modern take. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it sounds, sounds interesting. Again, Kazune Kawahara is another author who I, I'd really like to kind of delve into the works of even more. So there's that. For sure. I was looking forward to more work from them. And now we're going to be talking about a few series that are kind of coming to an end. First off, it turns out that Luvius Estrem Haruhisa Nakata seems to be nearing its end. That is going to enter its final volume's worth of content starting with its you know most recent chapter that came out this past month. So. It seems that probably in just a couple more chapters, the series will conclude. This is a series that V-Lord in particular really likes and reviews for all comics and has gotten me interested in checking out. So I am very curious to see how this is going to wrap up. And of course, there was an anime for this last year as well. So maybe potentially it'll make more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I still need to check this out myself too. Mm-hmm. Another series I really want to check out, especially now that it's ending and will really all be available to check out on Manga Plus, is Moonland from Sai Yamagishi. That is going to be including uh, in just three more chapters, basically in the 79th chapter. So that'll be done by the end of November. The final book, the ninth uh, volume of it, is going to be out in December. So yeah, you can read all the chapters of Moonland on manga plus and this is a series i've heard a lot of great things about i mean we did check out the first couple chapters of it when we did our first impressions of manga plus last year i hopefully meant to to get back to it and now that it is concluding i think i will before the end of the year Mm -hmm. yeah in general we were we were kind of talking before the show and like i 
At some point, I really want to go back to some of these Manga Plus series now that a lot of them are ending and, like, maybe do some retrospectives on them. Uh, maybe possibly possibly as, like, uh, normal episodes or maybe even some, some Patreon bonus content, possibly. That would be pretty cool. Uh, we're still, we're still kind of deciding, but uh, hopefully we'll get to those at some point. Mm. I would agree, but that basically covers it for our serialization news. So now we're going to get into some licensing things. And probably the first thing to mention on the subject of Jump-related series is that Moriarty Patriot, a series that we recently reviewed, you can basically read the entire first volume on the Shonen Jump app. Yeah, so uh, I double-checked on this. So if you have the Shonen Jump app, uh, you could you could read the first three chapters, but if you're reading it for free, uh, only the first chapter is available. But I mean, the first chapter is like, what, 70 pages, I think? It's pretty long. Yeah, it's about a third of the volume. Yeah, so it, I think it makes sense that they only made that first chapter free, because at first I thought, because usually how it works is that the first three chapters of most things are free uh, for people to read. Yeah. In this case, it would be the entire volume. I mean, they did do that for uh, that time I got reincarnated Yamcha, but <laughs> I guess they realized from that, oh, well, then we basically could have made the entire manga free. So <laughs> maybe, maybe we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't just have the entire first volume free. Or, you know, as more volumes come in, I think that probably would be a cool idea to just have, like, yeah, that entire volume you can check out. But regardless, that first chapter is a really good story. So you can enjoy that. And if you have the app, which, again, is only like two bucks, you can read the entire first volume right now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, be- best case scenario, like if you want to read the, uh, the other two chapters, basically read the entirety of the first volume on the Shonen Jump app. It's just two dollars. Like you're you're literally saving what, like four dollars reading it on the app than you would like buying the actual volume so i don't know if, if you if you're looking to save some money and you wanted to give moriarty the patriot a try we you know as lum said we did do an episode covering the first volume if you want to check that episode out uh we we, we both thought it was pretty good a pretty strong start to the series and uh, i definitely can't wait to read more of it at some point absolutely but there are also some other new kind of digital things being available news, specifically on the subject of simulpubs. If you've had trouble reading a bunch of financial simulpubs on Crunchyroll Manga because their service is using an outdated Flash player that will be discontinued at the end of the year, and their apps are buggy, and they fail to load chapters, and uh, sometimes they fail to update series for weeks or on time off frequently it's almost never on time well you know you're in luck because you're not gonna have to use control manga if you have comiXology unlimited because you can read all the simulpubs that would have been on Crunchyroll manga on Comixology Unlimited without any additional cost. They're just going to be available for you. So Eden Zero, Domestic Girlfriend, well, Domestic Girlfriend's over. But Space Brothers, Attack on Titan, Ghost Central Human Algorithm. Yeah, you can read all those on there. Card Captor, Clear Card, you know. So you can switch services because Crunchyroll manga is just 
continue to really mess up. I keep telling you every time I try to use it, it just, it crashes on me. Like it just, yeah. I honestly, I wouldn't, uh, I didn't even know what you just said. That was going to probably be uh, the specific program they're using is going to be phased out soon. I'm, I'm wondering if Crunchyroll is just going to kill Crunchyroll manga then. I mean, they give it no attention. They put no work into it, no love into it. I mean, I, I feel bad for people who do work on it and try their best, but probably are not given the time and resources they need to, like, really fix the problems with it. But if they're not really going to invest in making it functional, then yeah, just discontinue it and focus on anime because you're not putting in the effort to, like, make your manga service reliable like your chapters don't come out on time sometimes the final cup chapter sublimations did not come out for weeks <laughs> that's like they wow. came out weeks late uh yeah there, there there's a reason that like i'm uh, that i don't keep up with like ajin monthly uh anymore i just it's 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 even even when i even when i try to catch up with it it's just it's it's such a headache trying to use that app uh, but whatever. Uh, I mean, including Comixology, I, I know they also. I, I know Kodansha also has simulpubs for their stuff on like Bookwalker. Like th- there are other places you can read your Kodansha simulpubs, thankfully. So yeah. Um, but I guess speaking of but, Comixology, or did you have anything else you wanted to say? Well, I mean, no. I was also going to transition into speaking of Comixology Kodansha. They have added some other stuff and namely they have added more drops of gods one they've added one's 20 street the 30 street drops of gods so another good 11 volume chunk of it and the final couple volumes the final 11 volumes are going to come out early 2021 so yeah once those do that will be all the drops of god available in english finally oh man so if you are a connoisseur of the fine wine that is the Drops of God manga, then definitely drink all that up. You know, you know, savor it. It's all on comicsology for you to enjoy. Man, see that that's on my manga Mavericks to do list too. Is is eventually, eventually we we need to invest in a comicsology unlimited account and and just read all of like Drops of God, Initial D, and Beck. That would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's also something else now available on Comixology too. Oh yeah, and Shaman King. I, I forgot to mention Shaman King. That as well as our next piece of news. Uh, yeah. So, uh, speaking of other Comixology things, so to be perfectly honest, I, I've been like meaning to bring this up on a like the last few episodes, but I kept forgetting. So, I mean, all of these are pretty much available at this point, but, like, I just thought it was worth mentioning to our listeners that there's some Shigeru Mizuki manga just now available on Comixology, um, including the first volume of Shigeru Mizuki's Gege no Kitaro, uh, specifically kind of like the test volume that Drawn and Quarterly put out before they started putting out, like, their actual uh, series of volumes later. And, I mean... I will say that, like, when I first heard the news that, like, Kitaro was available digitally, I was pretty excited. Um, but it seems like they only have that one volume up. So, like, I'm kind of hoping maybe they put up the rest of whatever Drawn and Quarterly is released. I'm, I want to, I want to say they'll do so, but, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll keep an eye out on that. But, uh, uh, they also have, uh, Nononba available. As well as uh, Onward Towards Our Noble Deaths, uh, Shigeru Mizuki's Hitler, 
as well as Showa, A History of Japan, uh, all of which I know are uh, really interesting series in their own right. Uh, some of them have even been either nominated or won awards in the case of like Showa, A History of Japan. But yeah, uh, basically, I just wanted to let everybody know that Mizuki's works are available on Comixology. Um, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully they'll add more Kitaro, but we'll see. Yeah, I think it's great that they are now available digitally. Mizuki's works just makes them more accessible. I mean, yeah, Mizuki obviously is like I'm gonna say one of the uh, one of the most prolific, important manga artists ever. So it's it's nice to it's nice to have their work available, or I guess more available, I should say. Um, but now I think we're gonna move on to some actual new licenses to talk about. Yeah, and unlike what had we had been doing in the past couple episodes, we are going to just cover every piece of licensing news that has come out recently that we've kind of accumulated, just because there isn't too much, so we don't think we are going to need to spend too much time. It's, it's an actual manageable amount of licenses. Yeah. So we'll start off with some novel stuff from Cross Infinite World. They've licensed yet another one of those reincarnated as a villainous in an Otome game type like novels. And this one's called I Reincarnate as Evil Alice. So the only thing I'm quoting is that. That comes to us from Shi Kudusu and Minata Yaguchi. That's going to come out digitally on December 18th. It's basically about a girl struck by a car while saving a kitten, died as the heroine of her favorite Atomi game, Evil Alice's Other. And then remember that even though it's a dating game, there are a lot of bad endings and won the award for Deadliest Game of the Year. So, you know, tons of death flags in these different routes. So, you know, it's a gothic romantic comedy. So I think the style of it is pretty good. Cool. Again, it's going for more of a gothic feel. Uh, but it, yeah, I mean, the premise of this is like, yeah, it's yet another one of these reincarnated villains in the Tomy game series that pretty much uh, has been piggybacking off of uh, reincarnated as a villainous. So, I mean, we'll see how this one sets it apart in this uh, developing subgenre. Mm-hmm, for sure. Next up, we actually have two licenses from Futakia to talk about. And instead of like the usual long list of 30 plus uh, titles that they just kind of add, we actually have some info on some of these new licenses here. Uh, one of which is to come out, uh, I guess both of these will pretty much be out available on Futakia by the time this episode's out. Um, the first one to mention is A Love to Light the Afterlife by uh, Miyu. Basically about uh, about a guy whose best friend basically passes away, and uh, he's kind of left to wallow in his grief and regret over his best friend passing away. Uh, while he's on his way home, you know, he's walking over the railway, crossing exactly on twilight, and finds himself in the afterlife, uh, where his friend's spirit is. And uh, basically, he's determined to be reunited with his best friend, even so much as to uh, make a wager with the afterlife ruler. So uh, this this kind, this kind of sounds like the movie Ghost, if Ghost were more epic, almost. That's uh, <laughs> the best way I could put it. Uh, next up, we have The Puppy Dog Student Can't Ignore the Two-Faced Waiter uh, from Akebino. Uh, that one will be out on the 31st. Uh, Ryu, who is an ex-designer, now turned cafe worker, owned by an old family friend, uh, lives life faking smiles and being agreeable, basically a people pleaser. 
uh, his act would have been fa- uh, flawless if not for an annoying young customer uh, who seems to see right through him. And as fate would have it, Ryu finds himself mentoring Haruto, the customer, uh, for his entrance exams. And little by little, they wade through the lies and acts, understanding each other better. So it uh, seems like an uh, interesting story about basically about a person who's uh, meets up with another person, having them open up to one another. That sounds like it could be a possibly uh, interesting, heartbreaking story. Uh, actually, both of these sound pretty, pretty interesting. I, I would I would at least try both of these. So. I think so. I think these are great new additions to Fudakibo's growing library, which, again, is currently over 150 tiles strong, and they, they said they plan to get the 400 at the end of this year. They only have two months left to add those remaining 250, but we will see. We will see if they somehow manage to uh, add in 250 more titles in the last couple months of this year. I'm expecting next month fully another, like, list of 30 plus titles they're gonna add probably potentially uh but now let's move on to yen press and uh they've licensed they've licensed even more stuff that i'm actually kind of interested in so yeah yen licensed quite a lot again this is another big news bomb that happened like a day after we recorded our last news roundups and it was like man if we had just waited we could have voted to cover these but Regardless, they did this, of course, at their, like, virtual panel, Street Num YouTube from the New York Comic Con Metaverse event. Uh, and they license seven new manga, four new novels, all of which are slated to come out in either March or April 2021. And a lot of these are pretty big and interesting. So we're starting off with the Dorara SH novels, of course, from Yogunarda and illustrated by Suzuhito Suda. And this is a sequel series to Dorara, where a character called Yahiro Mizuchi comes to Tokyo in hopes of starting a new life and maybe seeing the headless writer. But the famous Delahan Selty, she hasn't been seen in half a year, and either has anyone who's Gonna, please, gone out to find her. So, where's Selfie? What happened to the people who look for Selfie? I guess we're gonna have to f- see and find out in these novel series. Uh, next, we've got Hanachan, The Shape of the World. The, this is a new manga from Ryotaro Ueda. It's the story of a girl who lives in the country who encounters fragments both bitter and sweet in the world around her. It's a story about the shape of her world. And the art looks really cute and interesting. Uh, I like. Her reflection in the puddle in front of her house and the rain falling. It looks very moody in a very interesting way. And it's interesting how the reflection is like looking up at her. So potentially is there something of like something doing with like maybe her reflection is its own like entity looking back at her? Because in the reflection, like the reflection version of her is like crouching down looking up at her who is as we are seeing in this cover she's like staring out like in the shadow of her door up in her house like looking straight on so wonder what's going on there interesting visual intrigues me to check it out oh yeah for sure next we have one that uh, the people on the Yen Press panel were like, man, you know, you think you heard all any all these premises in manga. You think you heard them all. But every now and again, you get surprised. Because this one is Pleased with the Mon Takamini-san. It comes from Yuiji Hiragi. Uh, this is about the student council president, Takane Takamine, uh, you know, very beautiful, uh, everyone thinks she's out of reach, they would never really, they would never associate with a friendless nobody like the protagonist, Kochi Shiroda. 
But uh, he sees her undressed, and then after seeing that, he's forced to become a walk-in closet as she changes her underwear. And it turns out the reason she's doing this is because she has the ability to bang time by uh, changing out her underwear, it seems. So, interesting. Yo, dude, this shit is wild. And when I was reading this, I was not expecting that swerve at the end. Oh, you've read this? No, I, I, I meant uh, I, when I was reading the synopsis for this, uh, when I was going <laughs> yeah. through our news earlier in preparation for the show, like, I was was not expecting that at the end whatsoever. Yeah, it looks like kind of one of those edgy series with a twist. So, could go some interesting directions, potentially. Uh, next, we've got the in another one with my smartphone manga. Of course, the original series was done by Vittoria Fuyohara. It's art done by Soto. And the original character designer was Eiji Uzasuka. And yeah, it's about the guy who was killed accidentally. And God was like, my bad. So when he was reincarnated in a medieval fantasy world, he gave him a smartphone. And that makes things super easy for him. Truthfully, I have not heard like very interesting things about this. Uh, but the manga version is coming out if you are a fan of the novels. Next, we've got Yokohama Station SF, the, the novel. This comes from some Tatsuyuki Tanaka, and illustrated by Yuzukari. Uh, this is set in a future where Yokohama Station covers most of Honshu Island, and there are two ways of life inside the station and outside it, and the life inside the station is very strictly controlled, and dudes who fail to follow the rules are to be expelled to the harsher world outside, so... When one of those exiles receives a temporary ticket to go back into the station, uh, he's also given a mission to find the leader of a group determined to free humanity. So, I guess an interesting kind of dystopian future set at Yokohama Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, we've got Can't Stop Cursing You, a manga by Kensuke Koba, art by Natsuko Uruma. Basically, about a guy called a cursed detective named Kiyoharo Sayama. There are people in the world who make contracts with devils to gain the power to curse others to death, but this guy, the curse detective, he uses the traces of curses left on the victims to uncover the identities of the sick killers, and so it's a deadly paranormal game of psychological warfare. Next is one that I've heard a lot of people really excited about. I think this is the one people are most excited about in this round of titles, and this is Sex Education 120%, uh, manga by Kiki Ki Takaki. Tataki and Hotomura doing the art. And this is basically a very sex positive story about a gym teacher who wants to basically educate students because Japan's sex education standards are awful and her students barely know anything. And so she basically tries to guide them responsibly and educate them safely. And uh, again, it's a very sex positive and very educational manga. I heard a lot of people were very look, much looking forward to it and have a lot of things to say about it. That is is genuinely educational and uh, has a good perspective on a lot of this stuff. Next, we've got Hazure Skill. The guild member with a worthless skill is actually a legendary assassin that comes to us uh, by Kenoji and illustrated by KWKM. These are novels, and it's about a world's greatest assassin who has taken a worthless skill and made it so powerful that he managed to kill the greatest demon more that's ever lived. And he could live out the rest of his days as a wealthy and famous man, but instead chooses uh, an exceedingly normal life fed under entrance guild. So he's very exceptional, and so because he's so exceptional, living a normal life isn't going to come easy. So uh, there's probably going to be a lot of shenanigans. What's his, what's his worthless skill? I have to know. 
Yeah, I mean, that is an interesting question. I wonder what it is. But that's not the only kind of assassin story yet in Press's License, because they've also got the Love of Kill manga from Faye, which is about two hitmans, uh, and the one of the hitmans is targeting the other hitman. So it's a deadly game of cat and mouse, and who is going to fall first? And both, of course, it's a double entendre, where it's not just referring to, like, who is going to assassinate the other, it's also who is going to fall in love first. So, yeah, it's an interesting premise. It's kind of like Spy Family, except they're not keeping a secret. It's an open secret. Oh, I was I was going to say it sounds a lot like uh, like Kaguya-sama, except taken to the most extreme level. Oh, that's a good comparison, too. Yeah. Kaguya-sama, but they are actually trying to kill each other also. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd I check this out. Mm-hmm. And lastly, uh, well, not quite lastly, because there's an additional thing, but from the round of announcements they made at uh, the Metaverse panel, they announced they have both the Bullfrey manga and novels. Of course, the novels are by author Yumi Khan, illustrated by Coin. The manga is drawn by Oimoto. And yeah, it's about a girl who is playing this game and she basically bumps all her points into defense. She buffs all her defense stats because she doesn't want to get hurt. And. By doing that, she basically becomes pretty invincible, and the game becomes pretty easy and fun. She hangs out with a lot of friends. I just heard it's a nice, you know, chill adventure of these folks playing a game, having a good time. And, of course, she becomes a big star in the game, because she she creatively uses her defensive powers in ways that uh, go beyond even the game admins wildest imaginations. It really shows off the power of the fence. That actually doesn't sound like a bad idea for a premise. No, it's a, it's a good premise. Like, a lot of people really love this series. And have a lot of great things about it. It's very much intrigued me, and I definitely want to check it out. Like, I had, like, seen this talked about, but I had no idea what it was about until now. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd be up for checking this out. And the last yen thing to talk about is a follow-up on their plans with Harvey. They did announce that they were going to release that new Harvey novel the same time digitally as it was coming out of Japan. And now we also have confirmation that they will release it in print in June 2021. So the next Harvey novel, Intuition of Harvey Suzumiya, you can look forward to that June 2021. And of course, uh, the light novels are going to be reprinted next year under the yen on imprint starting in January 2021. So that's going to begin with Melancholy and Psy. So it'll be two light novels every month from February to May. So the entire series can be reissued just in time for the new book to come out in print. So if you're a Harvey fan and want to pick up the novels again, you know, this is definitely a good time to do it. Which one's going to be a good year if you want to get Harvey in print again. But that about does it for Yen, so now let's get to Wiz, which uh, had some shocking announcements, I would say. I was shocked. You are shocked. Yeah, just one one after the other. Yeah, I mean, you sound uh, pretty overwhelmed. Yeah, because it it happened. It finally happened. Uh, amongst everything else, Viz is going to be releasing the Fist of the North Star manga, the original Fist of the North Star manga, in hardcover books with their color pages, and they'll also be releasing it digitally as well. Coming this summer, 2021, guaranteed we are going to be talking about this on the show next year. Yeah, 
I mean, this is, again, very, very big. It's great to see Viz finally take a chance on redoing this series. Actually, it's not the only series that they tried to do before. It didn't work out that they were doing because uh, number five, Ataya Matsumoto, they did that in the early 2000s and now they're doing that again. So that's really cool. But yeah, Fist of North Star is, again, a classic, formative, you know, shonen action story. Uh, an all-time great. I'm so excited to have it back in print. And the quality of the release is going to be equivalent to that of the JoJo's hardcovers. So they're going to be really good books, really well-made. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to look forward to here. I'm I'm just glad that we don't have to use our Patreon to, like... Uh, to to raise money for that Kindle thing to to refist to the North Star like we like jokingly suggested we would. I mean, maybe we could do that for like Captain Tsubasa, but who knows? Maybe Viz will release Captain Tsubasa. I doubt it, but never say never. I mean, they have not done anything with that anime. They no, they haven't. Ah, don't get me started. I'm trying to be happy about Fist of the North Star. I mean, they can get Genie Party out in time and not Captain <laughs> Tsubasa. I don't know what's up with that. <laughs> anyway. Look, I we we cannot understate like how big of a license this is from Viz. Like this is the, the this is probably one of the biggest things that they've ever like announced that they've gotten, quite honestly. But yeah, uh, um, amongst everything else, you mentioned a uh, number five by Taiyo Matsumoto. Um, I I heard that did have a previous edition released uh, at some point. Yeah, early two thousands. Um, so that's good that that's being uh, picked up and released again. Uh, we also have Censor from Juji Ito. I want to say that's a short story collection. Yeah, I mean, I think that's basically uh, they're trying to release a new book from Ito every year. And most of the books are like short story collections. Uh, as far as new licenses go, we also have Yakuza Lover. Yeah, this is one, like, a lot of people are super excited for, for, like, the Anime Feminist Discord was going crazy over it. They're super thirsty because this manga, I mean, the premise of it is, like, this college, uh, age person, you know, falls in love with, uh, this Yakuza boss, and they, uh, fuck a lot. There's a lot of very <laughs> passionate sex oh, wow. in the manga. Uh, and yeah, so people were are very excited for that. Uh, they were debating whether the dude was hotter with his glasses on or off. Uh, I mean, it's really nice to get like a manga that is full of like very passionate consensual sex between two very attractive people in love. Uh, that isn't like, I guess, a full on hentai or is is free of a lot of problematic things to expect that's not too like exploitative maybe yeah so people are really looking forward to this uh, especially um so they're going i think this is one a lot of people are salivating over thirsty for so i i'm i am too i'm very much looking forward to it i mean look i i like my yakuza type stuff so yeah yakuza in my shoujo manga yeah i'm i'm totally up for it yeah and then they've also announced that they're releasing something called kirby manga mania which uh we might have to link to the episode of manga machinations talking about this because uh you'll get to listen to an interesting history about this particular release that i don't i don't want to go too into on the show here um, but suffice to say that there's a lot of history behind this, like, particular Kirby manga that, that I think, uh, we'll have, we'll probably have to, like, bring on Dakazu to talk about it on the show, because 
from what I hear, it's it's very interesting, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, I think it's supposed to be specifically like a collection of different chapters from from this manga series because if I because I, I was I was kind of looking this up right, and um, if Anime News Network is correct, like apparently Viz has released like three volumes worth of this Kirby manga back in like 2010 or something, and I think that's all they released. But basically, for one reason or another. Uh, the original series had to end, but then they they eventually brought back the guy who was doing it to basically finish up the story, because uh, I guess it ended at a uh, it, it ended pretty abruptly. Uh, that's kind of the long and short of it. But there's also like so much more to this manga that like I'm not mentioning right now, but I really I really want to save it for another time because that could actually be its own podcast. Um. Okay, but also, like, another really big announcement that uh, they literally announced, like, last night, the night before we recorded this, just in time for the finale of JoJo Part 5 on Toonami. Yeah, I mean, literally just after that, they tweeted out uh, during the last episode broadcast on Toonami, you know, Twitter thread said there was going to be an announcement at the end, and when the episode was over, they did announce, indeed, that Golden Wind, the manga, is coming summer 2021, so... Yeah, and of course, hardcover print and digital, and it makes sense timing-wise because, of course, the Diamond release would be finished uh, by May next year, too. So I think we can expect this in August next year. I guess I should have expected it, but, like, I didn't really think to expect them to to announce Golden Wind this soon. Um, But, I mean, JoJo obviously is doing very well for them at this point, so I guess it's not too big of a surprise. Uh, I can only imagine how soon we'll probably get Stone Ocean afterwards. That would be really cool. Yeah, I mean, if they're going to do these as like two-in-ones, I think it will still take two years at how frequent the release rate is, because it's every three months, so four books a year. So I would say we'd get to it 2023. It'll also be interesting to see which will come first, the Stone Ocean manga or the anime from David Productions. I mean, hopefully the anime, because it's already been a year since Golden Wind ended. I would hope that we'd get Stone Ocean in the next year or two. Uh, It'd be good if, like... Yeah, timing-wise, it'd be good if, like, the Stone Ocean anime happens and then Viz announces the manga just in time. Oh, man. But ser- seriously, like... Oh, uh, we also forgot to mention that uh, Viz also announced that uh, they're going to be releasing volumes uh, in print and in digital of both Mashal, Magic and Muscles, and Undead Unluck. So I have to imagine that uh, a lot of people are probably reading those series in particular and talking about them a lot. Yeah, I mean, those are the big hits of the most recent crop of Jump series in Japan, especially like those are the ones that are selling very well, doing very well. So, I mean, this is probably seen the signs. Okay, these are going to stick around. These are the popular titles. Let's get on print for these fast. So I think, yeah, I mean, they're making a good call there. And of course, you know, reception is very positive for both series. So, yeah. It's good to see these coming out of print. I mean, they're coming out of print earlier than stuff that has been running longer, technically, like Yozakura Family. I mean, that just goes to show, like, yeah, these also trust what they're seeing over on the Japan side in terms of sales. Like, these are the big heavy hitters. These are probably going to be two of the up-and-coming staple series in the magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also nice that they're getting on these series before they probably eventually get anime. 
it's still quite early. They both started this year, so I mean, it's good. It is good though that they're gonna start, you know, volume releases of it like well in advance of when they would potentially uh, get anime. Which I I wouldn't imagine we get any announcements about that for another year for one of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, uh, so so far it looks like it's possibly likely, but we'll see. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's like you said, it's kind of early to tell. But I mean. Yeah, they're both less than a year old. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess I, I guess I, I didn't know Mashal was like doing so well. I, I wasn't really expecting that to last as long. No, but... it's it's a big hit. So that that's interesting to see. I I can kind of I can kind of understand Undead Unluck because I personally I I think it is like probably one of the most like interesting action series to be running right now. Uh, one of not not the most, but like one of them. Uh. You know, because mm. um, I know a lot of people like stuff like Jujutsu Kaisen. That's pretty popular, and I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just, it's just interesting to see what um, what what Viz picks up because obviously it's a sign that these series are doing pretty well. Um, but yeah, no, uh, I um, I know we didn't really like say a lot about the Yen Press licenses. There, there was a lot of stuff in there like I'm actually really interested in reading, but like. Boy, in terms of like really big uh, licenses that are probably on like a lot of people's wish lists, uh, I think Viz kind of wins out here. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to top uh, Fists of the North Star and Number Five and Golden Wind and Yakuza Lover, which are titles like people were like going crazy over being announced, you know? So uh, Viz did announce again the biggest stuff, the stuff that's gotten people most excited. So yeah. Mm hmm. And uh, I definitely can't wait to uh, to check out some of these, especially Fist of the North Star. I'm definitely buying volumes of that. Uh, and yeah, again, look look forward to our future episode on that. And uh, again, may- may- maybe Kirby Manga Media as well. I thought those are kind of the two I'm like interested in talking about the most on the podcast specifically. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that about does it for our licensing news. Yeah, now we'll head into miscellaneous stuff. Let's start off with, of course, COVID-related con cancellations. Los Angeles Comic Con 2030 not happening. That's rescheduled to next year, September 24th, 26th weekend. It's originally going to be happening in December. That's not happening, of course. Neither is Anime Frontier. That was supposed to happen this December, early December. But, of course, now postponed to December 2021. After previously being scheduled for May 2021, but you know, uh, COVID quarantine, all that's going to be keeping these con events locked down a little while longer, I think. I don't think we're going to be able to congregate in public places en masse for at least another year, probably. But regardless, people are planning to do some interesting events nonetheless uh, one such project production is a broadway adaptation a broadway musical adaptation of makoyo ano's manga memoirs of mysterious or of amorous gentlemen this is a manga that was uh being run on crunchyroll manga that i read and i like uh ano's stuff and this was another very interesting series but yeah i mean this is getting an american broadway adaptation from a tony award-winning stage director and choreographer rob asherford who did like the frozen stage musical and yeah they're directing choreography choreographing it it's gonna have a worldwide release Whoa. and uh, it's being managed by devin kudel of bespoke theatricals and Izumi takochi is credited as the producer and yeah 
So, this is quite a surprise uh, of all, like, the kind of series to get a musical adaptation. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect kind of more of a somewhat obscure, somewhat undergroundy type manga, like Memoirs of a Morris Gentleman to get that treatment, but, I mean, it's a good story. It could definitely translate interestingly into stage, uh, but, I mean, of course, Japan is no stranger to stage adaptations of manga, but for American production, a Broadway production of a manga musical, a stage musical for a manga, that is really rare. And so I am very curious to see how it turns out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 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 is actually some pretty big news. Uh, I, I can't I can't think of too many manga properties that like you know get full on Broadway adaptations. That's that's definitely a new one. Yeah. And next, uh, we're going to just talk about uh, some interesting stuff that was revealed by Shonen Jump Plus editor Yuta Moyama, who shared some insights about the popularity of Manga Plus uh, worldwide, like what the top countries by readers were. And so for September specifically, uh, these were kind of the rankings, and we'll just go kind of strew... Yeah, we can do the top 20. So, counting from 20 to 1, it's Singapore, Vietnam, the UK, Canada, India, France, Colombia, Chile, Argentina, Italy, and then in the top 10, Germany, 9, Peru, 8, Brazil, 7, Malaysia, 6, Spain, 5, Philippines, 4, Mexico, 3, Indonesia, 2, Thailand, and the first is the US. But uh, it's kind of an interesting statistics here. Like, I didn't expect Thailand to be, like, the second most. Not in Indonesia, like... Yeah, it's kind of interesting to see what territories are the most frequent users of Manga Plus, for sure. And, of course, uh, Moyama also notes that Monster Number 8 and Spy Family are very, very popular. And in other news, the sky is blue. Yeah, but I think what's interesting about that, about saying that, is Moyama notes that, you know, there were rarely hits overseas when it came to manga that didn't already have screen adaptations. So he speculates that the popularity of these new serializations cannot only be attributed to how good they are, but also for the fact that there are no pirated leaks coming out in advance of when these are being posted on the service on manga plus. So I think perhaps manga plus is really doing a good job of combating piracy and promoting manga uh to readers in a big way oh yeah for sure i i know i was kind of being facetious there about kaiju number eight and spy family being popular because we 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 know especially how popular spy family is i know monster eight is also uh kaiju number eight is also a a a new big hit too but it i mean they they do have a point like it, it is kind of interesting to see how popular uh, a new series can be like with, with without having some kind of adaptation, especially over in the U.S. You know, yeah. Next, we also got some uh, manga mo updates. Manga mo is now available worldwide on iOS, the app, and so that's pretty cool. Like it's available pretty much everywhere except Japan, China, and Korea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty big. Um, unfortunately, I don't think there's any news on the Android app, which. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sure they're still working on that, but uh, at the very least for iOS users, it's it's available worldwide now, uh, except for those three countries you mentioned. So that's it's it's still a work in progress, but I think they're making good progress, which is 
all that matters. Again, when when Mangamo eventually has their Android app ready, we'll we'll be sure to let you guys know. Yeah, hopefully they're working on it. But as something becomes more accessible, something becomes less accessible, it seems. Yeah, so I didn't really watch a lot of anime on Viz's website, like, specifically, but I, I know that it used to be because now it seems that on the Viz Media website, um, for, uh, cause they used to have, like, free who- They used to have an anime website. You, you used to be able to watch free anime, uh, streaming videos on Viz's website. And all these videos used Hulu embedded streams. Yeah. So it was from the Hulu player, but you could watch them for free on Viz's website. You didn't have to be a Hulu subscriber to watch them. But that isn't really possible anymore because Viz has removed their anime section of their website. And now the page just redirects to where you can watch their shows on other platforms, namely Crunchyroll, Automation, Hulu, and Netflix. So uh, there were a lot of shows that were basically, you know, on Hulu uh, specifically, or on streaming services specifically, that had to subscribe to that you could just watch on his website without having to subscribe to the services. But that really isn't the case anymore. Like now, you're gonna have to subscribe to one of these. Uh, of them, Crunchyroll and Funimation at least have three options uh, to watch some of these shows. But you know, the shows that were on Hulu and Netflix, you know, they're they're kind of still stuck there. Uh, namely Sailor Moon on Hulu. If you know now, if you're gonna want to watch Sailor Moon, you're gonna have to uh, subscribe to Hulu uh, to watch it at all. Uh, so yeah, you know this is kind of a shame uh, in terms of like accessibility. But at least I guess they're putting their stuff on other services. Like a lot of the stuff that was only on Hulu from Wiz is now on Funimation, like Ranma Hap and Inuyasha and whatnot. So uh, potentially maybe they'll keep spreading it around. Uh, and then if stuff comes to Crunchyroll, Crunchyroll of course has, you know if a free option. So uh, if Sailor Moon was on Crunchyroll, that'd be pretty good. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they did that eventually. But unfortunately, Hulu has kind of exclusive contract for Sailor Moon. So I don't know how likely that is. Mm, yeah, we'll have to see, I guess. I mean, Sailor Moon Crystal was supposed to expire, but then they removed the expiration on it. So I don't know what's going to happen when, if it ever does expire from Hulu. I guess we'll have to see. Um, but moving on from that, I just want to talk about this really quickly. Uh, so Quibi basically is shutting down and I only wanted to bring this up because, uh, I was really excited about, uh, about the fact that they had greenlit a live action adaptation of Junji Ito's Tomie series. And, uh, basically ever since that was announced, I had been kind of like looking out for updates and none ever came. And, uh, yeah, I, it's just, you know. I really haven't heard, like, a lot about Quibi. Like, it really seemed like not a lot of people were using it, as far as I can understand. Yeah, people were just memeing and joking <laughs> on it. Like, no one no one had any respect from Quibi in my circles. Yeah, not at every, all. Every podcast I listened to discussing Quibi was just riffing on it and how stupid the way it was making shows and presenting the shows was. So I am not surprised because, like, again, it, it was just awful tight. And from, it was already, like, kind of a shaky idea, this idea of, like, this short-form content being the most attention-grabbing thing for people on the go. But 
obviously in this time of quarantine where people are kind of want to spend more time watching things like they're not on the go as much so they're at home and when they want to watch something they really just want to pay attention yeah of course it's not going to be that appealing so <laughs> Katzenberkey and invested uh, so billion dollars or something into this or whatever and of course it all blew up in just six months it's it's kind of very funny yeah, it looks like it's going to be shutting down around December 1st of this year, so, and it launched on April 6th, so, yeah, literally seven, eight months this was, this, this was up. That's, that's kind of, that's kind of sad. Um, I mean, it's very funny, like, they lost 90% of the subscribers they had after the stream on trial <laughs> ran out when it, it started up, so, like, only 72,000 people stayed around to engage with Quibi after like 900,000 free trial uh, users. So like it did not win anyone over or convince anyone, hey, I want to continue paying for this and watch stuff on Quibi. Like hundreds of thousand people like checked out and saying, yeah, I, I enjoy these three months. But, or I, these three months were whatever, but I'm not sticking around. So uh, it was, it is a massive fa- failure. Again, this is a, this was... A $1.75 billion were invested in this. Jeez. <laughs> crashed in less than a year. It, it is very, very amusing. And it's all, I'm, I feel bad for the people working at Quibi, except for, of course, Jeffrey Katzenberg is historically a terrible businessman and a bad person to work with. So it is funny to see his ventures fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, um, Pretty much that Tomia series was like the only thing I was looking forward to at all, but uh, I don't know. I don't know how far they were on production for that in particular. I think they were only in pre-production, so I don't know if anything was even... Obviously, in time of quarantine, I doubt anything was even filmed. So, who knows? Maybe uh, they can take the project somewhere else. They can try and find someone else to make it. But... Yeah, I mean, you linked to Casey's tweet in our news document how it is unfortunate Alexander Aja's attempts to adapt manga all seem to get cancelled because he also tried to adapt Cobra into a live action film and that got cancelled. Yeah, so yeah. who knows if this will ever materialize? Uh, I guess we'll have to see, but... Yeah, I mean, Quibi's goal was to produce short-form content, and hey, <laughs> it also was short-form. <laughs> yeah, it only it lasted for so long. Oh man, um, but again, ho- hopefully we'll see that Tomi series maybe formed somewhere else. I'm I'm really sad that that didn't really get to be anything because I actually really was kind of looking forward to it. Speaking of uh, app streaming services and whatnot, uh, you know there are going to be new uh, productions on the way from Netflix because they have announced new partnerships with NAZ, Science Row Mappa, and Studio Mir, like some of the biggest studios in the game right now. Like big business alliances are going to probably produce a lot more shows with them. So uh, I guess look forward to more Netflix exclusive animes. That's definitely something that's very interesting. But also interesting is that even though it seems like there's a lot of big uh, business partnerships, a lot of interesting new productions and the work in general the anime industry seems to be slowing down growth is slowing down in 2019 it was at 11 year low and this was a the second consecutive year since 2017 that we've seen kind of a decrease in the growth of the anime industry because the revenue from the anime industry was only about 2.3 billion in 2019 uh which was less from the previous year 
I mean, in general, there is still, like, a growth period uh, overall trend, but, like, this is... This is like the lowest year on year increase uh, for the anime industry in like 11 years. So it's showing like kind of like the curve kind of flattening here in terms of the growth of the industry. Like we're kind of hitting the peak. So another interesting stat is that this 2019 was like the fifth consecutive year. There were more than 300 anime productions in a single year. But it was also the second uh, consecutive year of an increase in the total productions. Because the peak was in 2017, 356 productions. But 2018 had a uh, 340, 2019 was 332, and uh, in 2015 there was 322. So we're not back at 2015 level, but we are decreasing from 2017 level. And I think that is also kind of showing, yeah, the curve is like flattening here. We are kind of, we've kind of hit the peak of the industry's growth. So now we're kind of in a gradual, very gradual, like, gains per year, or we're, like, going to slow down to things starting to fall, maybe. And unfortunately, you know, even though the last couple of years have been a growth for the industry, the growth for companies, uh, the average company revenue, that peaked, like, 13 years ago. The peak for that was 2007, which was prior to the birth of the anime bubble, and that was when studios were raking in about 9.48 million per year. And nowadays, in 2019, they were they were only getting like 8.5 streets. So again, on the individual company level, growth has really slowed. Uh, but meanwhile, outsourcing and contract work are up about 3.7 percent, uh, and studios who specialize in that are seeing a growth uh, they saw 5.8 percent growth uh last year for 2018 which represents like a third consecutive year on year increase so it's interesting i mean to go to tie this back in with the netflix thing you know uh there is an increasing trend towards capital tie collaborations acquisitions to facilitate production of anime especially from abroad investors namely netflix uh, but also Tencent, which is like the big Chinese media conglomerate, and their subsidiaries, Howliners Animation League, and Color Pencil Animation. And then, at least uh, on, a, on a silver lining, only two anime companies declared bankruptcy last year, and one dissolved, uh, compared to like 12, a dozen uh, departing in 2018. But this reduction was only really because of manpower shortages, labor costs, and subcontracting uh, beginning to level out in 2019. But there's also still the frequent problem of unpaid or delayed payment to animators uh, as the primary reason for bankruptcy. So that's the kind of a uh, looming thing. But yeah, I mean, the report uh, from Tokyo Beta Bank here, uh, I mean, it, it basically projects that future problem points for the industry include shortfalls and manpower and training that might not be able to keep up with increased demands despite foreign investments. So we're going to probably see tighter production schedules, decreased productivity, which will, of course, lead to decreased revenue in the long term. So uh, they're going to need to be more adjustments to improve work conditions for animators. And considering there is a, of course, growing awareness of how bad they are. Uh, yeah, hopefully workplace conditions do improve for animation companies. So overwork is reduced and... You know, this is balanced against the cost of implementing this change, of course. Uh, well, honestly, the health of the workers is better, is is way more important as a priority than the bottom line. But, like, uh, you know, how these companies work. Hopefully they find whatever compromise they need to make this work, make these changes. 
But uh, yeah, COVID, of course, this year has, of course, changed things around because, you know, productions are more revoked now. Uh, a lot of things are being done from them, even like voice acting. But yeah, of course, if production efficiency is dropped in this transition, it's going to lead to delays and cost increases. And so that is probably going to impact uh, revenue and returns in 2020 for anime companies. So I guess it's really going to be interesting to see where the report of like how the anime industry fared in 2020 when that comes out. Because uh, uh, yeah, uh, this is probably going to be... If things are like grat- slowing to a crawl in terms of growth, like I think now we're going to start to see probably decline as a result of quarantine-induced uh, restrictions on work. But yeah, that the anime industry is kind of in an interesting spot right now, a precarious spot. I am curious to see how things fare. You know, despite uh, some sectors of the industry are doing well. I mean, right stuff. You know, uh, we talked about that. A&N Fireside chat with Sean Kleckner earlier in a previous podcast, but he mentioned that Right Stuff's business was doing pretty well. Uh, they were seeing like their biggest year ever, but despite that, uh, they still have to make adjustments, it seems, to accommodate some kind of changes, and the biggest change is now free shipping for Right Stuff orders. For colony shipping, now that has changed from $75. The order, your order has to be over $75 if you're a domestic U.S. customer to get free shipping. Before, it was $50. Now it's over $75. According to the Vice President of Right Stuff, uh, Christine, uh, the price increase is because boxes are now costing more uh, fuel costs are higher so i mean that that is affecting like where the threshold is where free shipping can be affordable for right stuff as a company uh so they had to kind of raise it and they decided on 75 dollars because their average order value is significantly above that mark and this was basically a compromise between they could either do this or they could raise prices on the products themselves. But, you know, with things are mainly with, you know, how shipping costs have increased, you know, and uh, delivery times have increased because of all the things, all the interference with the post office and all that stuff. Uh, you know, like a lot of factors have made the cost of shipping products around the country, you know, a lot more costly. Uh, so, uh, this was kind of probably inevitable, and this was probably the better solution than try- raising prices on the actual products. So, yeah, if you want to get free shipping from Right Stuff, uh, and you're a domestic U.S. customer, you know, you're gonna have to pay a little more, uh, but, you know, that's, I guess, just to accommodate the times that we are in. And I think it makes sense why they had to do this. And hopefully if, you know, again, uh, conditions improve, you know, if quarantine improves and, uh, you know, the post office can operate kind of more functionally like normal and all that stuff. Yeah, hopefully, you know, free shipping, the threshold can reduce again. Uh, But of course, it's also worth mentioning that Canadian customers are not affected with their free shipping threshold. That's still going to be at about uh, $250 US dollars. But uh, speaking of big uh, financial stuff, I mean, you know, the industry, it's in a precarious spot. 
in terms of like how it's doing overall, but they're having some big successes. Namely, Demon Slayer is a huge success, a big success. Obviously, we knew it was incredibly popular as a manga, but the anime is, of course, uh, exceedingly popular too. And Demon Slayer, the Mugen Train film, uh, broke a lot of records when it debuted theatrically. Uh, basically, Toho Cinemas, a lot of the cinemas, they kind of lifted quarantine restrictions for that weekend so they could have every, have all the seats open for people to go to. And, um, that seemed to have worked, uh, quite a bit, cause it really maximized the box office potential of, uh, the Demon Slayer movie Dream film, which ended up grossing in its uh, opening three-day weekend, which itself is anomalous because usually Japanese films, they have a two-day opening. They open on Saturdays. They don't usually open on Fridays. Demon Slayer open on Friday, uh, which short times is early in some places at 7 a.m. But yes, they had a three-day opening weekend, and over that three-day opening weekend, it grossed about $43.85 million uh, U.S. dollars, like $44 million. This is the highest-grossing opening weekend of any film in Japan ever all time to put this in perspective the last year saw the record breaker was frozen 2 uh that was only about 19 million so demon slayer doubled that they doubled what frozen 2 did in its opening weekend last year and that was the previous box office holder and again this is a huge record all-time highest-grossing opening weekend ever. Demon Slayer potentially could end up being, like, one of the highest-grossing films in Japan uh, by the time it ends its theatrical run at, like, the rate it's going because it's set to earn basically uh, an equivalent amount in its second weekend. I mean, by the time you're listening to this, we'll, we'll not know that, but... Uh, to put it in perspective, like, Your Name was the highest-grossing, like, anime film previously right but your name's opening weekend it's first three days that was just 12.5 million so think about demon slayer this is 3.5 more than uh your name's opening weekend and if demon slayer is a film that people continually go back to keep watching it has an extended theatrical run in the same way your name did yeah we could very well see like a huge huge box office uh for this film uh, incredibly successful. I would not be surprised if the, this film ends up as one of the top 10 films of this year worldwide. And obviously, the box office uh, films this year were effective immensely because of quarantine restrictions. But, I mean, to put this in perspective, Demon Slayer has earned more than the New Mutants, uh, which... Yeah, <laughs> Think about how, how much bigger America as a country is compared to Japan. That does say something even with quarantine restrictions. Uh, and during its opening weekend, uh, Demon Slayer was the number one film worldwide, which has never happened with Japan before. Japan has never had the number one box office opening internationally for a weekend before. Like, that is huge news. Uh, like, when the U.S. box office, the highest grossing film in the same opening weekend Demon Slayer had, when the highest grossing film was only doing, like, about 6 million, Demon Slayer at the Japanese box office is doing 44 million, over double of what, like, the number two, uh, from China was doing, and that film was doing, like, by 19 minutes. So, again, this is, like, a huge, huge box office story, and it's gonna be very interesting to see like how this film continues to reform because 
Demon Slayer is exceedingly popular. And I'm really curious. Uh, I, again, to put this in perspective, this is it has grossed more than films like Kiki Celebrity Service, Woke Children, Dragon Ball Super Broly. Uh, it's just blowing past a lot of records here. But also, I mean, on the subject of Demon Slayer's popularity, we did get some cool stuff in terms of finally, uh, it's been about six months, but we finally got the Demon Slayer second character popularity poll results. This were done back in March, and Viz did their own English version. I remember they had like a pop-up. They're doing like these pop-up polls now instead of like blog posts where you, when you go to the series page, you could vote for your favorite character, and it was like for a short time. But as of this recording, they have not released any English language results for uh demon slayer popularity poll yet so we don't really have those on hand to talk about hopefully in a future episode we might be able to report those but we do have the japanese results and uh, some of these may be surprising i don't know basically uh the number one the uh the per, the number one most popular character man do we want to build up to this or we want to count no, let's, 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 let's build up let's build up okay we can build up uh yeah, I guess we have like the top 30 here. Let's just say uh, right outside the top 10, like numbers 13 to 11, I think are interesting as characters that didn't break into the top 10. Uh, Usui is number 13, uh, Mitsuri number 12, Nezuko number 11. Nezuko is probably the most surprising because she was in the top 10 in the first Demon Slayer popularity poll. But, you know, she really didn't have a lot to do in the final arc of the series she was kind of put out of the spotlight so i i get it i think i think there were a lot of characters who got more time to shine so yeah with that said uh number 10 we had knaus you know this is a character who had like a lot of really great moments in the uh final arc you know great fight against doma great contributions in the final battle to help Tanjiro. That's good, because I really liked her by the end of the first season, so. Yeah. So she got about uh, 5,305 votes. Uh, just above her, at number nine, was Sanemi. Also, a lot of character growth in the final arc, like, really kind of getting to know him more as a character, his vulnerabilities that he had. He did have uh, affections for his brother, despite being so cold and harsh to him. And his choice to become a demon slayer. And of course, you know, he had a pretty satisfying character arts overall. So he comes in at number nine. Obanai, another one of the Hashira who really only got focus in the final arc, but did have like a compelling backstory and some very memorable moments in the final battle. He comes in at number eight, uh, 6,000. 204 votes. Uh, number seven, we of course have Rengoku, you know, kind of ever popular just because he was such a memorable character i'm sure the fact that people were excited for the mugen train film coming out uh certainly helped but yeah he came in at number seven with about eight thousand points uh number six we have a nosuke obviously one of our main characters here uh good stuff all around consistently from him eight thousand seven hundred fifty points uh number five into the top five now we have shinobu you know, kind of only had some stuff early on the final arc, but still had a lot of memorable stuff. A lot of really cool, like, contributions that paid off down the line. 
just in general, one of the most interesting uh, characters in Demon Slayer. Definitely one of my favorites. She came in at number 5, but about 8,787 votes. Surprisingly, perhaps, Tanjiro, our main character, he is number 4 at 9,045 votes, despite being... Uh, he was number one in the first popularity poll, so this is uh, quite interesting, a uh, bit of a change. So, now we're getting into our top three here. Who surpassed Tanjiro? Well, Tokido. Tokido comes in at number three. Uh, you know, another character who, I mean, I think his biggest focus was, of course, in the Swordsmith Village arc, but of course, like, uh, he got some very emotional character payoff in the final arc, too, and He's a very compelling character. So he comes in number three, Giyu. He, of course, is a very consistently popular character. Had a, some really great fighting moments, I thought. Uh, character moments uh, in the final arc. Uh, he has some spinoff for a reason, I think. So he came in number two with 13,281 votes. But by quite a significant margin, our number one most popular Demon Slayer character. The fans' uh, favorite Demon Slayer character. They have spoken. It is Zenitsu. Yes. He has come in at 17,451 votes. as the most popular Demon Slayer character. He made good on his promise. After the first character popularity poll... He only got number two, and he screamed, next time I'm going to be number one. <laughs> and indeed, that has turned out to be the case. Zenitsu has earned the spot as the number one most popular Demon Slayer character, but quite a significant margin. I think the fans, they remembered that. They remembered Zenitsu's claim, his declaration, and they made good on it. So congrats to Zenitsu there. Yeah, that... Uh... My uh, my mouth stood open for at least ten seconds after I saw after I saw these results, and I mean, look, granted, I'm I'm not caught up on Demon Slayer. I've only seen the anime, so I've only seen so much. But wow, yeah, I really wasn't expecting that at all. Um, though, look, th this is not the first time, and it probably won't be the last time that like a Shonen Jump character popularity poll doesn't have its main character p automatically placed in first. You know. Yeah, it's just interesting because Tanjiro was first last time. And I think other than that, Nezuko's drop is... It makes sense, but it is interesting. She was number three last time to see her drop down to number 11. And I think it does reflect that, you know, she just did not get a ton of focus in the last act of the story. Which was kind of sad, but... Yeah, it makes sense. Like, the characters that made it to the top ten are probably, like, some of the most interesting developed characters that I think you could say had, like, really fulfilling character arcs. Mm -hmm. And some of the hottest, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, literally in uh, Rengoku's case and Tantra's case, I mean, he also has fire abilities. <laughs> um, I think uh, I'm personally disappointed that Inosuke didn't at least get into the top five. He was so close! So close, but... Yeah, uh, I mean, he was top five last time, but, you know, uh, Tokido kind of came in and uh, usurped his spot. Otherwise, the rest of the top five was pretty much the same characters, just in different positions. But, yeah, Tokido, like, very popular. I still can't believe Zenitsu got number one. That, that's re that really surprised me. Yeah, I think just... I think uh, the fans in Japan are... Are more like Zenitsu a lot more, uh, probably, or they just like found his declaration like endearing that he wanted to be number one and they wanted to actually make that happen. I, I will say, you know, I, I think I've said on the podcast that I'm not a big Zenitsu person, and look, like, I, I just rewatched season one with a friend actually, and you know, I, I, I don't think I hate him as much as I used to. I do think he. 
I I do think he has like good character moments, and I think he has an interesting so far from what I've seen, like an interesting arc. But like again, it's it's just so weird how like I think he can be a compelling character, but most of the time I just don't find him funny at all. Like it's 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 really weird. Uh he is pretty streamy. He can be a little clingy, uh, and kind of invasive of other people's uh privacy or respects or whatever and be a little selfish in his cowardness or whatever yeah i can yeah i can see why people would uh, not be so big on him i will say i think he does get good character moments uh throughout uh and i think he does have a, a surprisingly very serious showing from him uh in the final arc where he does not like fall back on his like typical tendencies. He like enters a battle is like completely serious throughout because it like it means something very personal to him. Mm, that's interesting. And yeah. that was like a really, really surprising character showing for him. But uh yeah. I, I like Sinichu Fine overall. But uh yeah, I mean there are aspects of the character that is are very annoying and probably more so when you like have to hear him screaming <laughs> in the anime. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think that's going to be about it for news. That's it for news, and now we can head into our discussion. We just spent a lot of time discussing a lot of comics, but now it's time to discuss the comic. And is it going to be a trick or a treat? Either way, I think this discussion is going to be very, very sweet. Alright guys, welcome to your monthly bonus podcast for the month of uh, January. I, I am your host Colton, and uh, with me I have uh, my co-host Lum. Hey, hey! And uh, with us today, uh, we have uh, our good friend and uh, translator for Jujutsu Kaisen, as well as uh, what we're going to be talking about on this bonus podcast, uh, Stefan Koza. Hey, what's up everyone? Happy New Year's to you. I'm so so happy to uh, be back. What a pleasure! Yeah, I mean, when when I, when I told you what we were, what we were going to be covering, uh, I know you were pretty excited to come on and talk about it. So I'm I'm pretty excited because uh, I feel silly because um, I didn't read this while it was uh, running weekly, and uh, I kind of regret it because I I think I only held off on it because I just assumed like oh we'll just cover it on the podcast pretty soon I'm sure and then. Two years have gone by, and uh, now we're finally getting to it. Um, we are going to be talking about Kazuki Takahashi's The Comic. Yeah, it's time to drama and solve murder mysteries. Oh, man. So, I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this because, uh, like, I, I, re I remember when, when, uh, when this was announced, I forget where, or I, I think uh, Shut a Jump just kind of dropped this news on their Twitter or maybe it was at a con, I don't remember but I remember when the news dropped and thinking like oh wow, Kazuki Takahashi's coming back to, to do manga for Jump and uh, if I'm correct, I believe he specifically mentioned that he did this miniseries in celebration of Jump's 50th anniversary, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, it came out during the 50th anniversary year. Yeah, yeah. 
So I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not really sure where to start. See, see, the thing is, at, at this point, we have already recorded an entire episode about Yu-Gi-Oh, which was supposed to be out before we recorded this, but unfortunately, things just didn't work out that way. Now I'm wondering, like, do, do we do we want to go into like talking about Kazuki Takahashi a little bit, or like how how much time do we like? I guess how much time do we want do we want to spend talking about him as like just an artist? Maybe for those who don't know about him, you know, outside of the Yu-Gi-Oh franchise, because I feel like not a lot of people actually know about Kazuki Takahashi as a person. Well, I'm interested in Stefan's experiences with Kazuki Takahashi's works, uh, particularly Yu-Gi-Oh. Because you were not on our Yu-Gi-Oh! podcast, so I'm kind of curious, like, what your first exposure to Yu-Gi-Oh! and his series were here. Sure, so, um, if, uh, if I'm not honest, uh, I, uh, grew up more as a, uh, Pokemon card collector. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Uh, yeah, uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! was definitely something which I kind of know through watching a few episodes of, uh, anime and things like that, um... I'm by no means a Kazuki Takahashi expert. However, I do remember when getting this offer, it was such a cool experience and um, such an honor because obviously the name value, even for someone who's not too familiar with uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! is just so great. Um, and it's um, kind of what you were talking about, uh, Colton, in terms of the the art um, and just kind of people who aren't familiar with Kazuki Takahashi, such as myself, um, I knew it was a big deal that he was coming back and people were super excited about it. And I remember even getting, when I was given the offer by my editor, he was like, hey, look, we got really something special for you. Kazuki Takahashi is coming back for the 50th and we want to offer you this miniseries. And I remember that being such a cool experience to uh, get that offer. I, I can only imagine, yeah. And it's pretty interesting, like, to go into, you know, translating the manga and not really have any background with Yu-Gi-Oh!, at least not much. And, like, it's a very different kind of story than you might have expected from the creator of Yu-Gi-Oh!, of, like, this card games battle manga. It's kind of like people maybe being surprised at reading Jocko the Galactic Patrolman after only really knowing a Toriyama for Dragon Ball. Mm, yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, for me, it was a very fresh experience. Um, and I know, uh, Kazuki Takahashi, the big thing with him and the comic was kind of, I don't know if we're kind of getting ahead of the conversation. I hope not, but, um, his experience with using an iPad for this particular series was apparently a big deal. And I remember that they even talked it up about it on like the Shonen Jump podcast and stuff, how, how crazy of a deal that was and kind of going through some of the extras he really talks about how interesting uh it was to be using this new format mm, see, that, that's it that's interesting i i didn't realize i mean uh i guess do, does that mean this was his first time i guess it was probably his first time drawing manga on an ipad or drawing it th uh, like manga this particular way but i'm sure he's drawn like other stuff like via ipad and whatnot and probably posted on his insta yeah i'm sure he's had you know practice before the comic you know drawing using digital tools but that was definitely the selling point of the comic one of the ones when it came out was 
Kazuki Takahashi was drawing his manga digitally instead of analog tools, and that was a big deal because this is an established veteran manga author making kind of the jump from traditional media to digital uh, art. And it's really interesting to see him experiment with that new format and like how it kind of shifts like his style that we are kind of used to from his previous works, especially Yu-Gi-Oh! Like, it looks very distinct. You still got that flavor of Takashi's art, but the character designs and even shading effects or even lack thereof are very, very different. As I think Takashi was exploring, like, how to make a good-looking manga with his style in digital format. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that interests me about the comic in particular is that, uh, you know, Kazuki Takahashi, we, we, we talked about this a lot in our Yu-Gi-Oh! episode, in our upcoming Yu-Gi-Oh! episode, but, um, you know, Kazuki Takahashi, the big thing about him and Yu-Gi-Oh! is that, and I, and I think, you know, what made Yu-Gi-Oh! the manga in particular is so interesting to me was that, you know, Yu-Gi-Oh! at least in the beginning was basically just Kazuki Takahashi's excuse to just you know, draw and either create or draw from all these different kinds of games that he likes to play. Because, you know, uh, I mean, Kazuki Takahashi in terms of games is into a lot of different kinds of things, especially like, you know, RPGs and Dungeons and Dragons and all that kind of stuff. And so it's kind of interesting to, uh, to, to go from something like Yu-Gi-Oh!, which is a collection of all those different kinds of things, to the comic where... None of that's really present here at all. Like it's, it's it's very manga centric and really uses really uses the medium of manga in a way that uh, I don't think I've really seen before in in a comic or a manga or whatnot. It's really interesting. It's got a great hook, and especially when you consider that this was coming out during the 58th anniversary celebration year jump, like, a manga about people communicating to each other through manga is just so appropriate to celebrate, like, the medium and how it can bring people together and tell stories. Like, I thought it was a really clever concept from that respect. And just in general, like the whole meta angle of like Kazuki Takashi is drawing this digital manga about a mangaka who uses digital tools and how how he and his his assistant, you know, collaborate through the ability of, you know, digital media to very easily, like from distances, draw the same manga. Like that is very, very clever, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I promise we'll get to, you know, what the comic is about in a second. But I also really like the way how, you know, because I'm very into manga with stories like, say, you know, The Promised Neverland or even like Attack on Titan to an extent where it's like, I, I love I love the kind of stories in manga where it's like you're kind of either trying to learn about a world or like trying to figure out a mystery and you're learning about things through receiving information in piecemeal. And I feel like the comic, the, the, the comic kind of takes that to a whole other extent where it's like, you know, not just the reader, but the main character, you know, a manga artist is receiving all these different kinds of clues piecemeal through his manga, which is interesting. But I guess we, we should we should probably talk about like what the comic is actually about. Lum, if you could maybe give us like a like a general, maybe spoiler-free premise on what the story is about. 
Sure, the comic takes place in the far-off year of 2022, where prisons outsource their inmates who can draw well their talents to manga companies who are in need of assistance to draw backgrounds and some such for cheap labor because digital piracy has affected the bottom line of manga companies, so they need to outsource for cheap labor using prison labor. <laughs> so I-, I am fully convinced said this is this is a real thing <laughs> no uh, i think so but yeah in any case we follow ryoto sakamaki who is a up-and-comer in weekly shoujo jump the world's Whoa. most popular Ooh. manga <laughs> magazine he's drawing a new series called pendulum of love he only draws the character art though his backgrounds are done by someone else an assistant who he, he doesn't know but is in fact an inmate in prison who three years prior in the far off date of October 31st, 2019 uh, was convicted of the Halloween murder of murdering a young woman by pushing her off a uh, overlook uh, in a Halloween costume and then drawing like this strange pumpkin symbol at the scene of the crime, which as it happens, is drawn in the very first page of Ryota Sakamaki's manga. So he gets very curious and concerned about this. But as he investigates and reads further, he comes to realize that Baba, his assistant, is actually trying to communicate to him the truth of the murder and express his innocence. And so Sakamaki takes it upon himself to go out and help Baba uh, prove his innocence and find out the real culprit behind the Halloween murder. Yeah, and that, that's 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 kind of the basic premise without giving too much away. Um, and you know, actually, Stefan, I think we might even brought this up back when we uh, had had you on to to just talk about your uh, your translation work and whatnot on an earlier episode. And and I, I remember you asking me or asking both Lum and I about uh, what kind of manga Shonen Jump could use and how you brought up the comic as an example of like a really just just a good mystery and honestly after reading this like I I don't know I don't know if I want to say this because like I'm sure there has to I'm sure there are other manga titles that I'm probably not aware of that maybe have never been brought in English but like in terms of like just a good mystery manga like I feel like this is the closest we've ever gotten as far as like Shonen Jump specifically goes yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, like you mentioned, Colton, um, it, it really kind of hit me in all the right spots. And, uh, as Lum was saying too, it was kind of a perfect, um, opportunity. The subject matter of kind of being mystery was a good spot. Also, the idea of using this kind of comic to communicate, especially in the year, the 50th anniversary of Shonen Jump was such a cool, uh, perfect timing. And, um, for comic, this is really what kind of it hit me in the right spot because of that mystery aspect of it. I know, um, like I'm a fan of just kind of like classic mystery titles as a medium, kind of not not just uh not just manga, but you know, like I like Poirot. Uh, there's also um a Japanese mystery show called uh, Furuhata Ninzaburo, uh, which is kind of an interesting concept where the murder is already revealed at first but then the uh detective has to figure out how to expose this guy so the whole time you're aware of who the murderer is 
but it's uh, kind of the way of pinning it on him. And um, I, I still think after reading the comic, this is something that we could really use in the Shonen Jump lineup. Just something that um, it, it then it comes kind of begs the question, well, what what is the kind of the chapter format going to be in terms of how many chapters are you going to spend on a single mystery? Is there going to be a whole overarching mystery while there's uh, small mysteries being solved along the way? Um, I know kind of the first title that pops into mind when I think of it, mystery in manga or anime is obviously Detective Conan or Case Closed, right? So Yeah, for sure. I mean, th- th- that's basically how Detective Conan does it, is that you you have this bigger mystery that you're trying to solve, but while, while you're trying to solve that, you're solving all these other like little mysteries as you try to solve that bigger one. And yeah, I don't know, like... Like, as much as I would love to see a mystery manga in Shonen Jump, like an actual mystery manga, I say actual mystery manga because, like, a lot of the titles I'm struggling to come up with, like, I, I, I think of titles like, you know, Death Note or The Promised Neverland, but, like, really, if you want to be more specific, I would I would personally classify those as thrillers, not so much, like, mystery manga. Right, right. Like a detective solving a murder, kind of, yeah. And like we mentioned on your interview, like even with, uh, even with Nero from, uh, from, from Yusei Matsui, like, you know, the, he intended for that to be a mystery manga, but like, he literally admitted that he didn't really know how to write mysteries all that well. It's kind of a puzzle solving manga in a sense, but it's also kind of like a supernatural battle kind of series. And Muyo and Roji is sort of the same too. Hmm. I still need to read that eventually. Um, but no, yeah, I mean, like, so I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like, as much as I would love to see a mystery manga in Jump, like, I, I wonder if we also run the risk of, like, possibly just almost using the same form formulas as Case Closed. Hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's hard, especially with how cutthroat, um, weekly Shonen Jump can be. It's perhaps a little bit, um, difficult for someone to you know, take the time to make this um, very elaborate kind of deep mystery or murder mystery and, you know, expect audiences to be patient enough to say, hey, give it a couple months for it to kind of form and then the reveal happens. Like, Weekly Shonen Jump in particular is that kind of format. And it's funny because uh, it kind of reminds me of um, the uh, manga that they did in... uh, what is it? Uh, Bakuman, the uh, the duo makes this. What was it like? Uh, the one in the elementary school where they like form a club. Is that one PCP? Oh yeah, PCP. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect crime party. Yeah, perfect crime party. So that that was kind of like their attempt at explaining how a mystery kind of uh series might work in Weekly Shonen Jump, and they do address those kind of problems and. I, uh, I I listened I listened to your guys's Bakuman podcast and uh, my opinion of the <laughs> not to bash the series but um I my my opinion of the series definitely I think without the nostalgia factor is a lot more objective <laughs> yeah and, um, uh, let's just say it wasn't for me but for some of the redeeming quality it was it was kind of interesting to see how uh, the problems that you might run into because they specifically said like well. You know, they weren't getting the votes in the weekly surveys or whatever because people were growing tired of the PCP and they're like formulating this um, 
the process and they're like, uh, we need to rev- make the reveal soon or this thing is going to be cut. So that's something, a realistic, you know, thing that might someone might run into if they were to actually do a mystery manga in Weekly Shonen Jump. Yeah, you can't slow burn it. You have to have constant payoff and, oh, twist after twist after twist. Right, right, exactly. PCP being brought up reminds me of Gakyohote School Judgment, which has an element of, oh, we have to solve like the truth about who actually committed this crime but it's really all about like these like energetic courtroom battles between uh inugami and whoever he's facing so that's also kind of another example of like oh there's an element of like mystery solving here but that part of it isn't as long as the oh confrontation climax twist climax Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. actually i i didn't even think about gakuhote i it's been so long since i read that but like yeah i mean i guess as far as like a quote-unquote mystery manga i guess like i guess like that so far that's probably been the most that's probably been the best attempt at it so far and when i say that i mean like it's the best attempt at it so far without it just being another case closed like it's 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 original enough i think to kind of stand on its own Yeah, there's no supernatural element to it, which I think is really interesting or refreshing. Like, even Case Closed has, like, a science fiction-y aspect to it in the fact that, you know, you have the drug that turns Conan into a child and Highbarn's child and and all that stuff. But here in the comic, it's kind of like just a very straightforward murder mystery of like there was a murder that happened there's a cover-up and you know the main character is trying to find the truth about what really happened yeah so all those points is true and kind of on the topic um i know definitely translating the series for all the issues that we've mentioned i not at a single point was not captivated sorry that's a lot of double negatives but (laughs) (laughs) um I, I like ever since the first chapter and Lum, you mentioned, you know, how on the one of the first panels, they had this image of the manga panel and then but you notice all these little secrets lying around and that instantly grabbed me. So I wasn't I wasn't like, oh, geez, just get on with it. Like I was very interested and invested every week, not just as a translator, but as a fan, just kind of trying to piece these parts together. And I thought that this might be kind of an interesting formula to just kind of reveal this mystery on the first chapter and then let the reader kind of solve it and then maybe have it kind of, you know, seven chapters, seven chapters, seven chapters, just kind of over and over again, and maybe have this overarching big bad or something like that pulling the strings. Yeah, as as someone who basically just kind of read it all in a row in one sitting uh i there was never there was never a time where i thought yeah like this is so slow i'll just get on with it yeah this was uh for what kazuki takahashi is going for like this is a very like nice tight story it doesn't waste any time um i I feel like i could even imagine myself reading this weekly and feeling like because i feel like every chapter ends on a good enough cliffhanger to where i'm like okay i cannot wait for next week yeah, 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 I remember having a lot of fun reading it weekly. I'm rereading it again. I honestly wish it was 
even longer with even more like twists and turns because it was really captivating especially the early chapters i really really enjoyed like how the mystery was developed and how they were communicating through the art and it is really well paced like kind of by the middle of it you have like the big turning point where it's like okay now we're all heading into the big climax and then just when you think it's all wrapped up oh wait there is one more twist in this in the final chapter so it was really, really uh, fun the way Takahashi kind of rolled out the story the way he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without giving it, w- without giving away too much right away. Yeah, like I, I, I really liked where the story was going because, like, at first I was like, "Oh, really? It was was that guy? Okay, it's, it was them the whole time." And then it's like, "Oh no, not really." There's there's actually so much more that you don't know. And I th- I thought that was pretty good. And I I guess my 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 only question about like the translation on your end, uh, Stefan, is um, did you ever have any moments where like because I mean, I guess uh, what was it what what was it like translating this week to week? But also like I, I can't imagine translating a mystery like this week to week, uh, w- without the risk of like. I don't know, possibly like misinterpreting like a like a small detail and maybe have that coming mm. that, having that come back to bite you or whatnot. Like <laughs> were, were you were you ever fearful of that kind of thing, translating like a mystery like this week to week or Um you know what it's it's funny you mentioned that. Um I think there was a little part of that for sure, um, especially with something that is as detail sensitive as the subject matter is. Um that being said though, um I don't think I even as you were talking about that, I ne- I don't. It didn't really spark up those kind of memories. So I think I was I was just kind of focused on doing the translation and just kind of trusting the editors to do their thing. Yeah, because I, I I don't know. Like I, obviously, I am not a translator, but like I I just I guess I I can't imagine doing something like that and not and not feeling like oh man, I got to get everything just right. Because <laughs> because because obviously like. Uh, I, I'm assuming every week you only had so much info as to like where the story was going to go. For sure. Um, and I, I also do want to kind of make sure that everyone knows as well that this was before the whole Shonen Jump Simul Pub thing happened, right? So I think I'm ki- I think I'm kind of thankful for that as well in a weird way, but. Also not because I think something like the comic would have really benefited from being part of this simul pub because there would have been a lot more discussion going. Um, you know, people could have talked about it on Twitter or on, you know, if like Shonen Jump uh, releases there. Oh, the chapter is out the week that people would comment on things like that. But at the same time, I knew that um, in the day and age that we live in as well, if there's a detail that was clearly not interpreted correctly... That's kind of a luxury of the day and age that we live in is that it can be edited, you know, digitally and obviously by the time something is printed as well. Uh, so I've definitely I've had that fear slowly starting to go away. Um, but even translating, you know, not just comic, but Jesus Kaisen or whatever else, um, that's definitely something that I've learned to kind of just not worry about too much. No, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um yeah, no. See, now that you bring it up, like this would it would have been so cool if like along with like the launch of the Shonen Jump app, 
at the same time we we got we got a new miniseries from Kazuki Takahashi like that would have been a great double whammy <laughs> yeah for sure for sure and i i'd really love to see more things like this just kind of this like one volume long miniseries um and i know it's obviously hard to expect that from mangaka who have a weekly series now but i'm sure there's a lot of people out there and not just i'm not just talking about a one shot you know but there's a lot of mangaka out there that would probably do a really great little mini series so that that'd be a cool format to see yeah toriyama's done a few over the years that you know have specifically been designed as limited one volume series and i would definitely like to see more of those i think a series designed from the beginning to be complete within a set number of chapters within a short time period can be really interesting and fun to read just as much as like a really long series oh yeah for sure for sure um on that topic, I actually, uh, so the, re- sorry, I don't want to go off topic too much, but, um, no, go ahead. I know what's effective in terms of this kind of mini series and how it's effective. Uh, the, so the recent, uh, Zipman series, his name is, uh, Shibata Sensei. Uh, he released a volume a couple years ago called, um, Hana Zamurai no Sahara. It's a samurai flower, samurai Sahara. And it's just this one volume long, uh, mini series and it just works so well. And I'd, I, I think it's just a format like uh, like I, I know I'm just kind of repeating myself, but it's something that I just really love to see more of. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. I, 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 I've I've actually read that before, too, like a long time ago. Oh. I, I, I thought it was I, from 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 the little I remember, I, I thought it was a pretty interesting, like little story. And uh, I, I get what you mean. Like, you know, as much as I'm as much as I love long form storytelling, and that's a big reason why I'm into Shonen Jump and manga in general. But every once in a while, it's like it's nice to just to have like a complete short little story that ends nicely in one nicely wrapped up package. I don't know where the yeah. Sometimes short there. stories can be very very effective. You know, um, not just manga, but just short stories in general. If you have this kind of one. I don't want to say gimmick, but if you have this kind of like interesting concept that might really only be effective in a short story format, you know, and such as with the comic, you know, like in this particular story, if you were to draw it out any more longer than it was, I think you might start to get kind of stale. But the fact that there is this limitation of keeping it in a short story is uh, can be very, very effective as well and sometimes have this real kind of punch that uh, something that's committed to telling this longer story can't do. Yeah. Mm-hmm, for sure. But I guess um, I guess one other thing I wanted to talk about before we uh, talk about any, like, uh, any, like, major plot details maybe we want to get into is um, I'm really interested in, um, I don't know, I guess when I first started reading the comic, I I was not expecting, like, the style that Kazuki Takahashi went with, because, like, it already, like, like, you could tell this is drawn by him, but it's not in the, it's not in, like, the Yu-Gi-Oh! style that, like, we're all kind of used to. Yeah, it's not as angular with such jagged, crazy hair shapes and whatnot. And for me, what's really striking is kind of the faces that he uses more of a dot-eyed style. It looks like very kind of classical in a sense, like classical animation, uh, kind of like maybe 50s, 60s era manga, like kind of Tezuka-esque guys. But it's still kind of got some modern sensibilities in terms of 
the designs and so it's just the faces are very it's very striking and very different from Yu-Gi-Oh! and definitely anything else kind of currently running in jump because of that kind of old-fashioned look that was probably intentional right it was an homage especially with the 50th anniversary I think so I think he definitely wanted to kind of give it kind of a timeless classical feel in the art uh, kind of to contrast like the fact that the subject of the manga is focused on digital manga in like the kind of evolution of how mangaka kind of draw series now or kind of promote themselves like we have say Himakawa like doing his live streams drawing live and he's kind of like a internet celebrity in addition to being a popular mangaka and then of course you have Sakamaki and Baba you know drawing the manga from completely separate places and then kind of combining their art just through the power of what you can do with digital media and tools so Mm -hmm. I think it's a really cool combination and contrast of like you have a kind of an older style of art, but then you have manga focused on new innovations in drawing and making manga. Um, I, I really, I really like that comment from, um, from, from Sakamaki at first, because I, where, where he's like, oh man, artist these days, like when he's watching, uh, when he's watching, uh, uh, his, his, his live stream or whatnot. Cause I, that, that, that felt to me like such a Kazuki Takahashi thing where like, that's, that's probably, I, I felt, I felt a lot of him in that statement where I like, I felt like that was him almost where it's like, cause you know, the, the dude's almost like 60 years old. So I'm sure, I'm sure he probably has those thoughts every once in a while where it's like manga artists do that kind of thing these days. Huh? Okay, <laughs> sure. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the landscape has changed. I just thought that was kind of funny, but um, yeah, no, I um, I, I love this new style that he's trying. Like, uh, honestly, like I don't know, it it made me to me it felt like a combination of like if if Kazuki Takahashi were to draw like peanuts characters or something like <laughs> like, like like the like the dot eyes really made me think of like a Charles Charles Schultz uh, Schultz kind of thing. I think one of my favorite details is just that how he kind of communicates the level of skill of the artist within the manga through his art. Because, like, you can tell that Sakamaki is kind of still a little bit learning the ropes just from, like, the way he's drawing his characters. And then you can definitely see the contrast with Himikawa. And, of course, with Papa, it's just, like, the contrast of, like, you have, like, Sakamaki's a uh, sort of okay like character design in contrast with like the incredibly detailed art of Baba. It's like I like that Takahashi he just kinda like very subtly communicates that differing degrees of artistic skill within with the characters themselves. To me it's like kind of a, a fun detail. And also just the style of the characters is manga and the way that contrasts with how the characters in real life are being depicted. I think that also works and to kind of define, okay, so the characters who are like in the real world of this series, like they look a certain way and they definitely look different from characters in the that are shown in the manga of this world. Which is something that can be difficult to kinda portray in manga just the contrast between how a normal person in the world looks compared to how a fictional character in the world looks yeah for sure for sure it's um 
I'm kind of actually, I have a volume one in Japanese here uh, and kind of going off of the points that you guys were talking about. I think it, there was a certain kind of a commentary that Kazuki Takahashi was going for as well uh, in terms of the production as well, because uh, these extras talk about how he, you know, used this iPad and it was kind of the back and forth between uh, him and his editor and his uh, assistants and stuff, too. And using this new digital format, apparently he used this thing called uh, Procreate. Um, it's an app on iPad called Procreate to do the um, initial drawings and kind of storyboard and stuff. And then once the, those are done, he moved it over to this thing called Clip Studio. Yeah. To do the tone mapping um and it was he said that it was just such a rewarding experience to uh not only try this new style of drawing um i know T kazuki takahashi is kind of uh famous for his really detailed like hands and expressive hands and things like that and the faces and the hair and things like that but he um he says that this process was really rewarding more for just kind of learning this new medium and having that back and forth between him and his assistants and um, learning that after all these years, uh, you know, being such an established mangaka, but it's both a commentary kind of on, you know, the things that he loves about this new digital age, but things that perhaps he uh, is a little bit old school about as well. <laughs> mm, that sounds really interesting. Um, I guess, uh, are, are there any, like, particular things about, like, the story and how the mystery plays out that we want to talk about in detail? Do we want to... Get in the spoiler territory here, I guess. Sure. I think we can dive in a little more deeply into the mystery characters. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, as, far, as far as like all the twists go, like uh, I mentioned it earlier, but I really like how I really like how, um, you know, the, the, the like how the mystery didn't end up just being like, oh, say a Himikawa did it because like it really at first it felt like that's what it was leading up to. But but then you start getting all these, you know, different like details, like how, you know, when when he is caught, you know, he's, you know, suddenly like shocked or whatever, and he has to be sent to the hospital. And that's when and that's when, you know, like, oh, there's possibly some kind of other organization behind what's going on. And that feels like a very case closed kind of thing, almost where it's like. You know, you think you're dealing with just some guy or whatever, and then it turns out, oh, they're a part of this really bigger thing that now they ha that now they have to tackle, and I really like that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. It's um, it, it was a it was a blessing and a curse translating this series because I was I was always just getting ahead of myself when doing the translating. You know, it's <laughs> like oh, I want to find out what's next and things like that, and. uh Especially for a mystery series, um, knowing the previous chapter, but having to wait that much longer for the next one was definitely uh, a little bit of a blessing and a curse. <laughs> I guess were there were there any twists that kind of stood out to you guys, or that you thought like were the most exciting, or kind of left you hanging on the edge of your seat? I mean, if if I may go first, um, yeah, that first panel where um, they kind of have that big. You obviously notice that drawing. Uh, on the ground with the pumpkin and what looks like a ghost and like a tongue sticking out its tongue and all that. But I remember one of the first things that I noticed was the alphabet on the pillars. And I was like, what, what is this H and Y and what is this flower doing on the corner? And having, having those little pieces kind of revealed along the way was, 
was super exciting. And I know, like, as you mentioned, Colton, I definitely was tricked into thinking that kind of more like, you know, who done it, but how are they going to expose this guy? But then all of a sudden, and I kind of kicked myself. I was like, you're kidding me. You know, it's like, it kind of threw me for a loop that there is this bigger picture. Um, and it was a lot deeper than I thought it was going to be. If I'm completely honest, I thought that, you know, uh, it's pretty obvious, like it's pretty solid, but mm, this is probably about it, huh? And then all of a sudden there are these other things with like the keyhole and um, like the uh, the overlook with kind of like the clock thing going on. And it was it was a lot more um, elaborate than I ever expected it to be. Um, and I know I particularly like the little um, the, the fireworks, how they use the fireworks noise and the YouTube stream. It was so... It was so like now, you know, it's so 21st century, like how they would use a YouTube stream to as a uh, tool in solving a mystery. Yeah, that w- I thought that was pretty clever, too, because the story really almost led me to believe like, oh, it probably wasn't probably wasn't Saya at all, maybe. And then it turns out like, oh, well, yeah, it would be because of what you said the his his YouTube stream or whatever you could hear fireworks in the background. I th- I thought that was a I thought that was a pretty good twist. That was legitimately pretty surprising. Yeah, especially because they show you kind of that flashback of oh, so we know that Saya was definitely at the scene of the crime when she died, but how was he also doing the live stream at the same time? So that was also a very kind of clever misdirect there and then yeah is i thought that was probably the the smartest like little clue was like oh they were able to hear the fireworks noise in the live stream so that was really really cool i will say though i think the detective assigned to the case he really did not do a good job no. the first time around because <laughs> how did he not think to investigate the live stream and pick up on that that boom noise and like the picture with Seiya and uh Mizuki was the name of the girl was it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like yeah. the picture of them together was just taped under one of the benches right they uh clearly didn't do their investigating yeah so like how did they not search and find that it's just been there for three years that's manga magic right there, you know, yeah. it'd be too convenient. <laughs> See, that's the kind of thing where, like, if this were a chapter of Conan, Conan would have to try to lead uh, Mori and Megare to the clue in order to find it. Like, I could see that totally being a thing. Even something that obvious, Megare's team would find, though, I would imagine. I, I, I don't know about him sometimes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, though? I mean, that that's that's what I love about kind of like mystery manga or just kind of mysteries in general like um the 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 detective i don't know if it's kind of a slap in the face for detectives everywhere but detective always kind of seems to be like very aloof and stuff and uh it kind of reminds me of like um phoenix Wright and stuff too with like gum shoes i don't know if yeah. you guys are familiar yeah you know where it's like he's just like dude how are you a detective <laughs> 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 so i mean there's always that kind of trope uh but then they, you know, they, but they kind of work hand in hand and uh, eventually solve the mystery. So it's, it's, yeah, it usually works out. Mm-hmm. And and then like, I was I was kind of waiting for it, but then you have the whole thing where 
it's like, oh well, the the synonym of say say a Himikawa is just it's just a combination of all these different. I'm assuming different like kanji characters from all the from from all the different names of all the different people a part of this group to make up one synonym. Yeah, the four four girl members. Yeah, they take a kanji from each of them and. Uh... Yeah, so I remember definitely when they show that photo of or the drawing of the castle and then you see like princess and saint and river. Um, I remember seeing those three and I was like, where's the fourth? And they kind of reveal that too. It was it was very clever. And in terms of the translation process, I remember that kind of giving me a little bit of anxiety because uh, when you get into kind of like pseudonym territory or kind of like puns and things like that, that always makes me or any translator very nervous. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I cannot imagine what it's like to translate case closed where at least half the time you have to deal with those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, very stressful, I'm sure. Um. So th- this this probably doesn't have anything to do with anything, and it's probably kind of dumb, uh, admittedly. But so when Sakamaki is going through like what each of the words on the pillars like mean in Japanese, he says that princess means hime, river means kawa, and saint means say. So <laughs> again, this has nothing to do with anything. But all I could, all, all I could all I could think was. So when it comes to Saint Seiya, Seiya, I know, I, know <laughs> I thought the same. Thing. So, so is that so is that name is so is that just meant to be redundant? I guess. <laughs> uh, I I it's it's funny because I think there might be a little bit of kind of uh, humorous kind of like like uh, kind of a playful tone there for sure. Okay, because I mean otherwise. Wouldn't that technically mean Saint Seiya would just be Saint Saint? <laughs> Saint Seiya, yeah, yeah, but um, let me tr- let me see. I'm trying to think of what the um, it's it's more kind of like a uh, how do you say? Because say say uh, the say and Seiya is um actually a star. Oh, okay. So yeah, so they it's it is kind of seems that so I think it's it's a very playful name. But um, even Sento is uh, it's actually three separate kanji, and Seiya is uh, Se is the star, and Ya is like arrow. So it definitely has that kind of playful nature to it, but it also kind of has that homage to you know like Pegasus and that kind of uh, okay Olympian, yeah, like Greek yeah. mythology and stuff too. Yeah, kind of ties into the astrological exactly. Exactly. See, that's exactly. that's that's me. That's me forgetting that kanji can mean like ten million different words. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Which is uh, yes, another stressful thing for a translator as well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, like, I don't know, like, I. I don't really have any other. Th- it's it's so it's so weird. Like p- part of part of my fear with with doing a podcast about the uh, about this in particular was that like you know I, I guess I, I mentioned like I wanted to give us a corner to talk about like the actual details of the story and we kind of did that. But it's but it's like I don't really have any other thoughts on like how the story really like you know proceeds and how it wraps up. Other than like I really thought it was just. I thought it was just really well written and done, well done all the way through. Like I can't really think of anything. I can't really think of any details that really made me think like, oh well, this was retconned, or like, oh well, this was just kind of thrown in, or or I would never would have figured this out, or 
I don't know. Like, I, I really felt like it was just really well written and just kind of yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. Like, there, there's really not. I I can't think of anything like wrong with it at all. Like, it, if I feel like it works. I have some misgivings about the Lumi Himeno twist, just in the sense that we did know that the Seiya Himeno had like connections to pharmaceutical company and whatnot, but. I feel like these explicit, like, foreshadowing of the character of Lumi Himeno could have been done a little bit more. Like, they could have been introduced as an idea, like, separate from the mystery at first. And then as time goes on, oh, wait, these two pieces connect together. Because I did feel like a lot of the exposition of, like how that character fit into this group and then why, how she was the real mastermind behind everything was a little kind of just brought up out of the blue in a sense. And then I also do just have a little bit of misgivings over the fact that it's not great that the villain of the manga is supposed to be a quote-unquote unattractive fat lady who was bullied as a kid. Uh, I do really feel that's kind of a bad message, a bad characterization depiction there. Yeah, I wasn't sure how I felt about that either. That's true. That's true. I wasn't totally happy with how that aspect of it turned out. In general, though, I really like the mystery and I like the truth behind Seiya Makama that it was like a clamp group of multiple people that is but, true uh, yeah i wish we kind of got a little more foreshadowing hints about like the other members that kind of led into oh so they were all in on this and then this is like the truth behind anything and a little more of humanity to the lumi himino character i would suppose yeah because otherwise she just kind of feels like the usual really grotesque Kazuki Takahashi uh, caricature that we see yeah. every once in a while. But um, I give I get what you mean. Like, thinking about it, I guess we could have maybe used a little more foreshadowing on that to maybe have that fully pay off. But at the same time, I still kind of like how... I still like the way, you know, the, say, Himakawa thing was done, where it's like, you think you're about to corner him, and you think you've almost solved this mystery... And then it turns out, oh no, there, there, there's someone else basically pulling the strings. And I, I still like the way that was done. Yeah, and I mean, I like the detail that in Baba's art, like you saw that a man was being trapped in the gate. And like, it was kind of like he was being imprisoned by this castle behind him in a sense. Like alluding to the fact that, you know, the person we thought was say him and Kala, he himself was like a prisoner in this whole mystery himself. So I like that foreshadowing that little detail. Yeah, I I think um kind of going on what you're talking about, Lom, with how, how you kind of feel kind of it was send kind of the wrong message or you would like a little bit more background. Um I think I totally see what you're talking about in terms of how a character like this who, you know, was bullied as a child and things like that, how they end up being turned into the villain kind of sends the wrong message. But if if we are to kind of take a silver lining, I think um, the fact that it is a short story format kind of lets you not not be bothered by it as much. Like if this was something where we were given this 
very elaborate background about this character and then they turn out to be the bad guy, I think that would bother me a lot more. Yeah, I was going to say, this is the kind of story that doesn't let you dwell on that kind of thing too right get much, too invested think, yeah yeah which i think is good like she's 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 kind of there and she's she's in and out pretty quickly i think which right, is good yeah, for sure and she does do generally really horrible things i mean she uses her family's connections and privileges to kind of there, like, engineer a situation where Yoshio is, you know, gets into a car accident and then he gets into depth. And so he ba- she basically forces herself into the group and controlling the group. So, like, she yeah. is a bad she person. She was bullied, I but she, yeah, she yeah. was bullied, but she also is a murderer as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's why I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. I would have preferred I think that's totally if fair. they yeah. emphasized the fact that she was this rich, privileged kid who wanted to control and, like, possess Yoshio and kill Mizuki because she was, like, possessive. Uh, more so than the fact that she was bullied as a kid and she is portrayed as this stereotypically ugly caricature. So I, I wish like one part was like emphasized more than the other or like that second part about her appearance was not really an aspect of it at all. That's that's fair. Um, But I also do think it's one of the, it's that thing where it's like, you know, all rich people are ugly. <laughs> or like all really privileged people in general are ugly. It's, right, it's, it's, it's kind of like it's, right, yeah. It, it's it's kind of like the she, she's kind of like a celestial dragon in that way. <laughs> yeah, um, although right in one piece, know, I, 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 I get what you I get what you mean though. Yeah, but yeah, no, I guess um, I guess do we do we have any kind of final thoughts before we uh, before we kind of start to wrap up here soon or overall? I really enjoy the comic and I. Uh, hope to see more like stories like it from Kazuki Takahashi in the future. But really, just more mystery manga in general. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy this new style of it, so I'd also like to see that employed in different manga in the future as well. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, if you did not have a Shonen Jump magazine subscription up until the launch of you know the Shonen Jump app, then there's really no way for people to read this, which I think is really unfortunate. But you know, that being said, we can only hope that eventually they will just add this to the Shonen Jump app as its own uh as its own thing. And maybe even one day Viz will put it out as a as a volume release. I know when and if they do, I'm definitely gonna buy it. And and hey, you know what? You know, when and if they put it on the Shonen Jump app, you know, I will definitely be putting this episode of the podcast up on uh, up on the main feed. So if you're if you're in the future listening to this on the main feed, <laughs> and it just happens to be on the Shonen Jump app, go read it on the Shonen Jump app. But uh, obviously, since you're listening to this on Patreon at the moment here, that's uh, that hasn't happened. Yeah, come on, Viz, and do it. Like October thirty first, twenty nineteen, was the Halloween murder. What appropriate timing, but to release the comic on the app and in digital volume this year. Come on. Yeah, I know, I know. Hey, I'm 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 ready to uh translate the extras for the volume if need be. <laughs> <laughs> uh but uh but yeah, like like I said, just just know that, you know, if you're listening to us on the main feed, it is it is hopefully up 
And uh, that's, I think, when we'll put it up as a, as a celebration of sorts, that uh, now we can finally read this thing. But until then, we'll I guess we'll play the waiting game. And yeah, just, just wait. If you have the chance to read this, even if you have to borrow, like, someone else's show to jump issues, like, p- please read this. Like, if you're, especially if you're a fan of Takahashi and, and hey, maybe, maybe you're like, oh, well, this guy can't do anything but Yu-Gi-Oh! Like, this is, this is a good argument against that. Because, like, th- that was another thing, too. Like, I was... I was really excited because, like, I know before and after you, like, before Yu-Gi-Oh, Takahashi had, like, a few things he worked on, but, like, none of them really gained the popularity or accessibility that I think Yu-Gi-Oh did, unfortunately. And honestly, like, reading the comic really made me feel like, oh, man, I just... Takahashi is definitely not on a shortage of really cool ideas, for sure, and I I really want to see more from him, especially post-Yu-Gi-Oh!, yeah, absolutely. But I guess uh I guess that's where we can end the podcast here. And uh Stefan, thank you so much for coming on and uh talking more manga with us. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Anytime I uh I'm looking forward to uh being on the show again and I have nothing but appreciation for you guys and respect and you guys are true experts of the medium. Oh, stop. You're oh, making me blush. <laughs> You're too nice to us. Um, no, it. no, this is super fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh, that's the chopper. Stop it, though, right? The, uh... <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can't you can't see me, but I'm I'm waving my arms in a noodle like fashion. <laughs> but no, yeah. Um, where where can the people find you? Oh, sure. Um, so uh, my Twitter is Steady Studios Two Zero, um, and I also am uh, kind of heavily putting up a kind of focused on a YouTube channel right now called uh, steady studios as well. So if you were to go to steady studios, like uh Jude's Kaisen or something, for example, I'm starting to uh, kind of put some uh, content up on there. So uh, if you're interested, not only in Jude's Kaisen, but kind of manga in general, I do little uh, manga show guys. I call it. it's uh, basically manga show and tell where I take a different series or like a latest volume of a certain series and uh, kind of show it off. Thanks again to Stefan for coming on to talk the comic with us. That was a lot of fun. It was a thrill to talk about this thriller from Kazuki Takahashi. And now we're also going to talk about something else that's a little trilling and creepy and spooky. One shot from the team behind the Promise Neverland. And yeah, Spirit Frogger Saburo Kono. Let's just get into this discussion. Basically, it is about kid called soda the apartment next to him is haunted and the people who move in there run out of the street ease after seeing like the ghost of a woman but someone moves into it there who wanted to see this ghost saburo kono a spirit photographer he claims that he can take pictures of spirits and trap them in his photographs and he wants to see the spirit in the hot supposedly haunted room so he can basically capture it in his uh, photographs and ask it to leave this world in peace but he hasn't seen it on his third day so 
supposedly. So he comes to Soda to ask for his help and trying to out the ghost. But it's really all kind of a trick. Like, he has seen it the last couple of days. The lock on the door is broken. The spirit's been coming in and out. He's been talking about it. And as he's been talking with Soda, he's kind of figured it out. Despite Soda saying that he did not really know his next-door neighbor who supposedly died. Who supposedly committed suicide by dropping off her balcony four months ago on a rainy day. Uh, because he mentioned that he she was a kind person and very pleasant, despite saying he didn't really know her, Saburo deduces that, oh, no, you really did know her. You knew what kind of person she was, so you're kind of hiding something. And so, basically, he kind of has gotten Soda into his apartment so he can confront the spirit, who is his next-door neighbor. And the reason why he's scared about this, like, why he, he's known what's going on, why he, he knows, like, kind of the truth about like, what really happened to his neighbor, is because his neighbor basically was trying to save him from committing suicide himself. Soda was a bullied kid. He was keeping all his problems to himself because his mom works really long hours and his dad isn't around. He didn't really want to you know, trouble her with his problems. So his neighbor had noticed this and told him to confide in her. So he had, but like at one night, it just became too much for him and he was going to commit suicide, jumping off his balcony. And his neighbor noticed and she like was trying to like jump off her balcony to his to like stop him. But she slipped and fell and like died. And so he blamed himself for her debt. But as he is confronted by her spirit as in the form of like a really wet, like ghostly, disheveled corpse, like he's he's scared. He's feeling like that it was all his fault. But instead of like blaming him, uh, she hugs him. She tells him that she's glad that he's alive, that he did not commit suicide. And she tells him to keep on living and smile and nothing goes into dying. So... You know, that eventually makes him realize that he did not have to feel ashamed or afraid and that he should continue to keep on living because that's what she wanted for him. And that's what, you know, she's hoping that he, he will do, that he will live on to have like a fulfilling, happy life and not live in like this loneliness and pain that he's been kind of keeping with himself. And so Saburo takes a picture of them together, the spirit of him and his neighbor and then he burns up the photo and her soul basically kind of flies off in the form of a butterfly because the soul takes the shape of a butterfly and she goes off and then the resolution of the story is like Soda confesses his bullying problem to his mom and he transfers schools he keeps like a version of the photograph that doesn't have uh, his neighbor in it but you know it's just like a memento of that moment and yeah, Sabro goes off to potentially find other like lingering spirits in this world to kind of help them capture them in the best moment uh, so they can sit, be sent off to the afterlife in the best condition. All right. Yeah. So this was uh, this was definitely a little more interesting than I thought it would be. Um, I kind of expected it to be uh, kind of a straight up thriller story, but it ended up being uh, a lot more emotional than I expected it to be. Yeah. Like, it had, it had a lot of, like, heart. I mean, it was dealing with, like, some pretty heavy emotions. And there's definitely catharsis in the idea that, you know, ultimately, like, what she really wanted for him, what 
his name and Yoko what she you know she just wanted this kid to be able to you know live a happy life and so she's glad that you know he's still alive and I like that she her message to him is to just keep living to like to not like isolate himself because as we see in the beginning of the chapter like he's just kind of holding up him by himself in his room like just playing games and not and kind of has closed himself off from other people and keeping all his problems to himself and so she just tells him to trust and confide in people so he does with his mom and yeah, and he moves to a school where he's happier and he's now ready to kind of uh, live his best life now, you know. He has a full life ahead of him. He's a young kid. So that's a good message, I thought. You know, especially, you know, this is being run and jump for a young readership. They might be going through some bullying problems and some hard stuff. I think this this was a really good, like, kind of story for that audience. Yeah, I mean, in general, I would love to see more, you know, one-shots from from this particular team, you know. I just – Posica and Shirai, I think, you know, I, I think are just such a great duo. And I, I'd be so interested in, you know, seeing just, just in general, like, what else they could come up with, whether it be a one-shot or maybe another new series. I don't know. I guess in general – uh I was kind of thinking about this. Do you think this could make for like a longer series or? Yeah, I think this could definitely follow kind of an episodic format where Sabro kind of wanders into someone's circumstances, life, like and encounters spirits who have either regrets or something they want to communicate to their still living loved ones or whatever. And he helps them communicate and he helps like these spirits be able to leave this world at rest, saying their peace and, you know, at a happy moment for them, which is kind of his goal. Like the reason like she was kind of haunting her room uh, was because she wanted to tell Soda like this message that he she wasn't able to before she died. And so now she was given that chance thanks to Saburo. They were able to communicate clearly and uh you know depart on a happy note so you know stories along that lines where it's like the deceased have something you want to communicate to the living the living have something you want to communicate to the deceased and that is like keeping like the deceased lingering on the spirits in the world you know sabro helping people with those problems yeah i could totally see that you know being a formula that could uh, sustain itself for a little while mm-hmm. i mean unfortunately we don't really get to learn too much about the spear photographer character that much yeah he's kind of his personality is just in his quirkiness you know that he's kind of a strange person he doesn't have that much depth of character i think his character design is musing he's kind of like a creepy inspector gadget <laughs> uh so I, I enjoyed that but yeah he doesn't have too much going on with him personally which is probably like the biggest issue the biggest concern i would have in developing this as a full series because obviously like a lot of the focus the kind of emotional arc of this chapter is revolving around soda and yoko and presumably if this were to be a long-running series you would have like the characters of the week you know them being the focus of whatever emotional arc is going on i think you do need just some motivation some like something else going on with Saburo to make him interesting as a character personally rather than just a cipher to facilitate these interesting stories yeah yeah but yeah, I mean, in general, I just, I just thought it was pretty good. Um, I unfortunately, I don't think I really have much else to say about it other than I, I wouldn't mind seeing how maybe they could 
turn this into a longer sort of serialization type thing. But uh, I mean, if this ever were to turn into a series, I would like to see how how the photographer character kind of maybe develops, maybe because uh, I think I think that is kind of like the one weakness of the story is that you don't really know anything about that character in particular. So yeah. I will say, I guess my only other thought is that Mizu's art continues to be fantastic with a lot of really striking imagery, oh, yeah. like the title page with Soda kind of in the lens of Saburo's camera. Uh, a lot of great use of warped perspective to set mood, like in great shading to make Saburo especially initially seem very creepy and aggressively intimidating, domineering over Soda. Uh, to get this sense of like claustrophobia like soda being trapped in this like really bare and empty room of course the image of yoko in her like corpse form is pretty terrifying and creepy looking like there there are some really great uh visuals in this that speak to the Misu's strengths in illustrating not only like evocative horror imagery but also you know sentimental imagery like the photograph of them like pinky promising and then the butterfly flying away which do look really beautiful mm-hmm. so I, yeah i mean again Zimizu is a fantastic artist uh like uh, just to read another manga with her fantastic art I am looking forward to. And this was, you know, a nice return to form, I think, for Shirai and Mizu in terms of crafting an interesting uh, story with, like, a really compelling emotional arc after The Promised Neverland's, like, final couple of uh, chapters. It's the last act of the story kind of left me feeling wanting and disappointed a little bit. So I think this renewed my faith in them as storytellers and made me look forward to like what other ideas they could explore in their future works and themes that they are interested in exploring those works. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the promised Neverland, little cameo from Emma and Norm and, uh, and Norman, the photographer has a, has a picture, has a picture of them. I don't know if you caught that. Oh, interesting. That's pretty nice. Yeah. So, so does the story take place on in, in the world of the promised Neverland? Well, potentially this could take place after they escaped into the human world. Possibly. You never know. Get those. Let's craft those theories, why don't we? Sure. All right. But, uh,. Yeah, I mean, overall, uh, I think we definitely recommend the, I mean, if you, if you, if you haven't read this already, it's definitely worth the read on the Shonen Jump app, uh, if you happen to have a subscription. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, with that, we can, uh, we can move on to community shoutouts and then end the show. Yeah, it was a short review, but again, we wanted to give you a little extra goodie to stuff this, uh, again, uh, Halloween basket for you. So, yeah. And, yeah, so community shoutouts uh, for this week, of course. In respect to Zumi Matsumoto, I do want to share like some retrospectives on him and Kimigori Orange Road. I mentioned before Cat Callahan's piece about their experiences with Matsumoto as a guest liaison for him, and also just personally with Kimigori Orange Road as a franchise, what that meant to them. Again, really give that a read. I thought it was very. Very touching, personal, and a uh, really great tribute to him and the series. 
Uh, but also, there is a good tribute for the anime of Kimigori Joe from Don of the Anime Nostalgia Podcast. He wrote this a few years ago around the 30th anniversary of Kimigori Joe. And I think that piece also spoke to uh, the appeal of this series really well. Uh, its historical importance, what made it kind of influential as like a, as a rom-com, what made it stand out, what you liked about the, the series, and kind of the different iterations of the anime franchise in terms of the TV series and the LVAs and the the films and like kind of the emotional roller coaster of the journey of Kimigori Android as an anime and of course spoke to a, like one of the main points of appeal of Kimigori Android which is like Madoka <laughs> really Madoka as a character is like the most iconic part of Kimigori Android definitely like its biggest point of appeal like as a prototypical tsundere archetype character like really one of the earliest codifying examples of that character archetype, uh, but also just as a really fascinating, interesting character in her own right and how cool and emotionally complex and interesting she was, which I, I definitely agree with. Like Monica and Hikaru too, honestly, are like the reasons for Ikuma Gorondra, like screw Kosuke cares about Kosuke but uh yeah like I thought that was a really great piece but in terms of an even more in-depth retrospective on the Kimigori Orange Road anime uh there was this great blog called Kimigori Orange Rewind that went through every episode of the anime and you know really did like a big analysis of every episode like scene by scene picking apart you know things they noticed about uh, how the story developed and interesting shots and character beats and you know really a great uh write-up and analysis of each episode of the series and of course they wrote their own like memorial tribute piece to Matsumoto 2 in the wake of his passing which was also you know very heartfelt in terms of like how they are choosing to remember Matsumoto is like an incredibly influential figure in the medium who created an incredibly iconic series and character that will definitely be remembered for time to come. Uh, and then on the manga side, I also want to recommend uh, back on in and you know, uh, Jason Thompson's old House of a Thousand manga article on Gimigori Nunch Road, which also spoke again to that appeal of the series, uh, what made it iconic and special and like kind of the appeal of it now in terms of like looking back at it as both of a, as a like kind of, a very 80s manga like a product of its time but like what makes it kind of special as a, a look back into that kind of time and place and telling like a romance story in that time and place like and reading that nowadays uh, and again he really puts it into context of like the romance uh, rom-com genre especially like especially in uh, jump and stuff and then touches upon like again with Madoka and like character archetypes and stuff so it's just another really good historical tribute perspective on Kimigori Orange Road and that's basically it for my Kimigori uh related shout outs there is one last shout out that I wanted to do I mean I, a lot of these pieces that I just recommended are from people who have been in the fandom for a long time been writing and producing a lot of great pieces uh, celebrating older series from like an older perspective uh, and I think one of the most formative like sites in that vein is the fandom post and sadly, the fandom post uh, is going through hard times. Chris Beveridge just earlier, a few weeks ago, had posted basically an article saying the fandom post, like with the state of its finances right now, only has three months left to live. 
Uh, and, the, you know, Chris Beveridge, uh, the Phantom Post, even in its earlier form, is like anime on DVD.com or whatever. Like, it's been a long since 1998. It's been here for two decades, you know. One of the, like, most formative blogs in the space, uh, doing so much great, like, reviews and uh, retrospectives, editorials. Uh, and Chris has put so much work into it over these two decades uh, and has grown so much and it's definitely like a huge part of this community and it'd be a shame to, to lose it but unfortunately you know the things are tough right now so if you could you know support the, the fandom post like donate to their patreon like that's kind of the best option at this point and i think you know uh, as a community it'd be great if we could come together to help you know chip in and help keep the fandom post uh, afloat but those are my shout outs for this episode. Uh, you know, definitely, you know, let's honor the memory of Azumi Matsumoto and kind of celebrate him and his work. And also let's make sure we can continue to support the people who are doing the work and have done the work uh, for these past decades, like keeping uh, fandom and history alive and, you know, like real pillars of the community, you know, to producing retrospectives and uh, editorial content that is really kind of trailblazed the way for like where anime editorialism and journalism discussion and content creation is now all right but uh i think that's gonna be the end of the show uh we really want to thank you guys for listening uh to an extra special extra long halloween sort of themed episode uh my my hope for next year on the podcast is that we can actually do like uh uh, it's like I said, I, I've always wanted to do like a Halloween theme month, and I feel like every time we try to, it doesn't work out as as well as I expected to. But again, we'll we'll, we'll do it one of these days. But for now, uh, we we wanted to celebrate Halloween, you know, however we can, uh, and we hope this episode helped you did it. So uh, yeah, uh, but until the next episode, we got we got a lot of things coming up. Uh, Lum, do you want to talk about any of those, or should we keep those under wraps for now? Well, we do have some stuff uh, that is very special planned for November. Basically, as you know, we have had quite a few podcasts uh, uploaded to our Patreon as early access uh, that have been on there for a little while. And we have kind of accumulated a few on a certain specific team, and so I thought it'd be really fun idea to have kind of a theme month this november which i am dubbing uh, lgbt thanksgiving basically our podcasts through the month of november are all going to be themed around uh conversations and retrospectives of uh, lgbtq related manga and, and as well as interviews of you know people uh creating uh or translating or working on said manga so we have a lot of really great stuff planned for this month we've got a episode on our dreams at dusk with the translator of the series jocelyn allen that should come out later this week we have an interview with uh an ishii who is one of the founders of massive goods uh, and is the translator of my brother's husband and a ton of other great series we talk about like her work with bara manga and it was really great conversation we talked with uh, Jack Scottrell from Noir Caesar and like her upcoming manga, Hanukkah Toba, uh, her work in the community and like 
uh, with Noir Caesar. Uh, we also did a uh, special retrospective of Kaze-san, celebrated its 10th anniversary this year, uh, with, of course, Erica Friedman from Akazu, as well as Kit and Sarah, the hosts of the Tomochako podcast, and that was a really fun one. And we've also got another great one planned for the end of the month that we haven't recorded just yet, so I'm going to just hold off on announcing that for now but we have a lot of really great podcasts this month uh, i think that you're really going to enjoy them and if you want to listen to these early you can on our patreon these some of these have been around and up on our patreon for a few months now so yeah definitely you could have checked them out earlier on there but now they're going to be coming out in november and if you, you want, can't wait for them to be come out week by week i, I mean they're all a lot of them are all up already, so definitely check that out. All right. But with that, uh, Lum, where can the good people find your stuff? You can find me at Lum Ramiyasha on Twitter. It's Lum Ramiyasha, where I have pieces like Animation Revelation and Anglis Road. There's a Lum Ramiyasha. That's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews on all-comma.com. we got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews coming out. So definitely look forward to more on there. And hopefully in November, there will be a lot more for me in particular. Uh, so definitely look forward to all of that. And yeah, you can also check out my art on my Instagram if you like the thumbnails I draw for the show. I uh, Sid Artworks on Instagram. All right. As for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host a few other podcasts on the side besides this one that you can find links to at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. I have a page dedicated to whatever podcast I'm doing at the moment. And uh, yeah, basically you can uh, find links to all my stuff there. Again, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh, as for Manga Mavericks and the podcast, you know, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks at allcomic.coms where we post every episode first, unless you are subscribed to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Manga Mavericks. Uh, just like Lum said, if you subscribe to the $2 tier, uh, you get to basically listen to early access editions of our podcast, depending on, uh, when we have them edited and, Again, just like Lum said, you can basically listen to the next month's worth of podcasts that we're going to be releasing uh, over the month of November on our Patreon. They're already up for people to listen to. So if you want to listen to them before anyone else, before they end up on All Comic, uh, again, that's the $2 tier. Or if you want some bonus content, uh, we upload a new bonus podcast at the end of every month for $5 listeners. Uh, right now, we are kind of doing a, like a mini-series read-through uh, through the Manga Mavericks Book Club, where my friend Doc and I from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcasting Network talk about Saint Seiya, the original Saint Seiya manga from Masami Kuramata. Uh, it is our first time reading through this series. And so, yeah, if you want to hear us stumble through Saint Seiya and gush about how cool it is, uh, we upload episodes of that again every month on the Patreon for our $5 and up listeners. Uh, and again, yeah, it's really the best way to support the show and everything we do here. So again, that's at patreon.com slash manga Mavericks. There's a lot of cool stuff, uh, waiting for you over there. Uh, but if you want to, you know, follow all comics specifically, you want to follow us on facebook.com slash all dot comic or on twitter.com slash all comic underscore. But if you want to follow manga Mavericks in particular, uh, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mangamavericks where we have different excerpts of the of the of different episodes of the podcast. 
sometimes even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. What are your thoughts on some of the news we talked about? Uh, your thoughts on Kazuki Takahashi's The Comic or on Spirit Photographer? Uh, what are you reading right now? What are some series you want to hear us talk about on the podcast? You can email us anything about manga or the podcast, and we will read it on the show at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever wherever you listen to your podcast. We're on a bunch of different podcatchers, basically any that you can think of, but especially on Apple Podcasts, it's really important that you leave us some feedback and a rating. Uh, it really helps the visibility of our show, helps people uh, find our show uh, that much easier. And again, we, we just appreciate the feedback in general. So uh, leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a second, if you so wish. Uh, but that's going to be about it for this spooky episode of Manga Mavericks. Uh, this has been episode 138, and we will see you guys next time for episode 139. Bye, guys. Sayonara! Sayonara!